Chapter 1. The Secret of Dark Personalities It seems that the secret that they get from others, what they want is precise, that they are able to use emotional information to play with others. They do have the ability to read emotions in a certain way better or more accentuated, which was the initial question. What happens is that this area is accentuated because another is in detriment. This dark personality trait would not be functional at all if they were really bad at manipulating and convincing the rest or using the emotions of others for their benefit. This is their style of behavior, and it is understandable that it is coupled with an excellent ability to recognize the emotional states of others and play with them in their favor. Even though they cannot understand how one really feels like this, they cannot empathize with the other, which leads them to underestimate the damage they cause to others. The dark personalities have a high capacity for social, perceptual, or cognitive empathy, but wide deficits in the other areas of empathy if associated with genuine emotions. It has also been found that their emotional management is quite deficient with their own emotions and those of others if they had to live with them empathetically. The Evolutionary Point of View Authors such as Andrew Witten and Richard Byrne claim that the intelligence of primates evolved through the Machiavellian intelligence. This ability to deceive and manipulate others in a medium that competed for resources was adaptive. This ability evolved along with the ability to read the mind. Of course, not everything stays there. Societies, which are the environment of primates, promote kind and prosaically attitudes. The key is to be able to separate one's mind from the other and have an effective empathy, and this will guarantee the harmonious functioning of a society. For a primate that lacks those skills, can remain moderately integrated into society and adapted to the environment, is necessary to know how to manipulate others to get what they want and fake the states that play to their benefit. This is possible because they keep intact the most perceptive capacities of empathy. It plays in their favor using that empathy of others and the lack of remorse in their benefit, making them get what they want, including a higher rate of reproduction or sexual partners. But in today's society and humans, there is a problem. Reproduction is associated usually with long-term couples, something difficult for these types of personalities. It is difficult, but not impossible. Using the same tools can exploit the environment to be in a position of economic success and work, with status and offspring, regardless of what lies behind all this lies and manipulations, are capable of developing short-term procreation strategies seem to be. It is well known that they are subjects that tend to toxic and manipulative relationships. How to identify a predator before becoming a victim. When people hear the word predator, many automatically think of panthers stalking smaller animals through the trees or pictures of rows of razor-sharp teeth from a meat-eating dinosaur painting from their childhood museum trip memories. While it is true that the term is usually reserved for animals that are known for hunting, the actual definition of a predator covers more than animal instinct. Predators are defined as beings that naturally prey on or exploit others for their own benefit. In the case of animals, this is basically the definition of the circle of life, or the natural order of things. It is understandable that in order to survive, some species feed on other species. This concept only becomes unsettling when survival is taken out of the equation, and the animal in question, in the case of dark psychology and its studies, a human being, is preying on and exploiting others for the pleasure of it, or out of gluttony. A noticeable skill set for the art of deception 
is a common trait amongst predators, the details of which we will cover more thoroughly throughout this book. Of all the personality types identified in the research of dark psychology, the predator is one of the most commonly found and the most dangerous if left unmonitored. Get to know the predatory type, some of their most effective tricks for daily use, and how to protect yourself from them when they wheedle their way into surroundings or even into your trust. Chapter 2 Elements of Human Darkness In this chapter, we will take the time and examine the dark continuum, the dark factor, and the dark singularity. The dark continuum is the way you comprehend your passage to the dark side of humanity. This includes your thoughts and actions and the way that you react to those thoughts. A dark factor is an invisible place in all of us. This factor is affected by our experiences and conditions that may trigger us to act out on our dark urges. Lastly, the dark singularity is our potential in all of us to become a predator. This usually shows no signs in our early lives. It is just as if a switch was flipped in our brains. In the dark continuum of our minds, we think of how we will react to different thoughts and actions of others. In this stage, our morals come into play tremendously. This is the first stage of defining if you have some psychopath in you. Let's face it, we all probably do, but in this stage, how you act on your urges is key. In dark psychology, the dark continuum includes thoughts of psychopathic acts, and they happen without any specific reason, purpose, or rationale. The dark factor is also called the dark core of your personality. The study of psychology itself was born for those who wanted to study and discover just what parts of our brain make us do what we do. One of the most interesting is the characteristics that cause us to harm others. This side of our personality makes us engage in horrible acts of violence, hate, and crime. Different people have different motivations that lead them to commit these wicked acts. The dark factor can cause people to be aggressive towards others and not be able to control any of their impulses. This lack of control can lead them into a life of crime. These people will act on their impulses no matter what the consequences are. They don't think about what their acts will do to others. People that are in this category are sometimes labeled as greedy, Machiavellian, narcissistic, psychopaths, sociopaths, and sadists. Psychopaths and Narcissists and the Dark Factor The Dark Factor is often called the D Factor, and a lot of research is currently being done on what it is and how it changes people's personalities. For those that have this D Factor, they may have one of nine personality traits. These nine traits are generally what will possess people to commit heinous crimes and act on their urges without even thinking about the consequences. Egoism is the first of these traits. This is the extreme need for them to put their needs first. They do not care what happens to others around them as long as all their needs are met. Machiavellianism is the second de factor personality trait. This is a belief that the ends can justify the means. The person doesn't care how cruel their actions are in this trait. Moral disengagement is next on this list. The third of these traits is moral disengagement. This is the ability to behave in a way that is entirely unethical, and the person doesn't even care about the consequences. We see this trait in quite a few serial killers. Another trait that we have mentioned quite a lot in this book is narcissism. This is an obsession with oneself. People who are narcissists do have delusions of grandeur, 
and they all want the attention. They do tend to look down upon everyone else in their lives. Another trait that many people consider in the dark factor is a psychological entitlement, when they believe that there is no one better than them on earth, and they are the only one that matters. They also feel that they deserve the best treatment that no one else does. Psychopathy is another trait that we have mentioned, and it is the lack of any empathy and thoughtless behaviors. Lastly, we have the three S's. They are sadism, self-interest, and spitefulness. Sadism is the art of wanting to hurt someone. This could be in the form of emotional harm or physical harm. People with this trait find it a lot of fun to hurt people. Self-interest is exactly what it sounds like. This is when all a person wants is a great social or financial status, no matter who gets hurt for them to have it. Spitefulness is the want to cause harm to others, even if it means hurting yourself. The D-factor is something that all of us can possess. Again, these traits are considered part of dark psychology only if we negatively use them. Many of us do have the D-factor inside of us, but it never gets released. This is what separates people from being good to being bad. Dark Singularity Dark Singularity is another part of dark psychology. This is the act of people becoming a predator and not knowing that it will happen or is happening. These people have no intent to become a predator, it just happens to them. We will dive into this just a little bit more to show you what happens during this phase. How do they become predators when they may be completely unaware that it is even happening? We have a few explanations for why people experience dark singularity. First, it is important for us to examine exactly what it means to be a predator. When many people hear the word, they automatically think of sexual predator. There are many other types of predators, though. Men and women can both become predators, and they may not have thought they ever would be. This is when the dark singularity is brought into the mix. So what makes someone a predator? The behaviors that people exhibit generally come from the ways that we think. If people cannot fully process their thoughts, they may change the way they act and how they fight off the urges in their minds. If they cannot think properly, they may act on their urges no matter how bad they are and no matter how much they hurt someone else. Psychologists say that predators will always have eight specific traits and that is one of the best ways to determine if they are indeed preying on others. The first trait of the eight is a sense of entitlement. They may act as they own the planet, and everyone should bow down to them no matter what. They feel that they are better than everyone, and they think that everyone should bow down to them, and they shouldn't have to help anyone else. The world revolves around them, and that's just the way it is. The next trait of a true predator is how they show their emotions. They fake them. They can look as if they genuinely care about a person and want to be with them, but inside, it is all an act. They pretend to be anything that the people around them want them to be. They want to get in good with these people, but they are preying on them. They will even share some secrets that they may not have shared with anyone else to get certain people to trust them and fully open up to them. Soon, their victims will see that it is all an act, but by then it will be too late. These predators lure in their prey and harm them through physical and emotional abuse. Predators have to be in control of any situations. They love to control other people. They will do anything to change the way another person thinks and isolate them from everything they love.
This is what predators do. When the victim of a predator finally realizes what is going on, they will have to leave the situation to get out. A lot of victims will generally jump back into a relationship with another person who treats them the same way. People who are predators have no empathy for anyone in their life. This is one of the main traits of those who are considered to be psychopaths, sociopaths, and narcissists. They cannot produce the emotions that go along with empathy. One test that many psychologists use to see if someone is a sociopath is to yawn. If they yawn back, they have shown that they do have empathy. If they don't yawn, they could be a predator. These people will pretend to listen and care about what others have to say, but they don't care at all. You may not have guessed it, but people who are considered predators are very personable and friendly. This may seem strange considering what many predators do to people. In conversations, they seem completely normal and know how to talk. They blend in very well in most social situations, and most of them are considered to be the life of the party and not a wallflower. Predators are good at playing the victim in many situations. They love to blame others for the way they feel and make their victims feel even worse about situations. They are the master manipulators when it comes to this. They are the masters of blaming, too. Predators are never wrong about anything, according to them. They never seem to take any personal responsibility for their mistakes and actions. This can make their victims feel terrible. These predators feel that they do not have any flaws and would never commit sins that would hurt others. They are so good at making people believe this, too. When they are confronted about their mistakes or sins, the predators can make up amazing stories and explanations as to why it happened and why they did it. They will always have an excuse, no matter what. If you are starting to believe that someone you know is a child predator, there are some signs that you can look out for. These may not be all of the signs, but this is a good place to start. One of the first things to look for is how close they seem to be with children. They may show that they would rather hang out with kids than adults. They have very few relationships, and when they do get into social situations, they flock toward the children and try to play them and not make small talk with people who are their age. They may have access to children at times, teachers, bus drivers, coaches, counselors, and different types of volunteers will be able to hang out with children as part of their job. These people also will try to volunteer at any event where they can hang out with kids. They prefer to be at events where there are no parents. These predators are very disconnected from their world and reality. They are also very disrespectful to people their age. Child predators come off as very charming. They are also child predators that seem to seclude themselves and are seen as loners. Some predators do have traits of both, so it can be difficult to recognize predators if you are going on these traits alone. Those who are charming do not have many special relationships in their lives, no matter how charming they seem to be. Their relationships don't have much substance, and a lot of them turn to prey on children to make up for that. With their charming persona, they also seem to be too good to be true. This is why many people are instantly turned off by them and never waste their time on them. Children and those who are more naive may love their attitude and flock to predators. They love to buy children gifts and take them to very special places to get in with them. They will make the child stand up for them when they ask their parents if they can see them more often. If you have ever heard the phrase emotional loneliness, you probably have related to someone you know or have met. 
Predators seem to have this trait more often than others. What is it? This phrase is often associated with those who do not have any intimacy in their lives and seem to push it away. They do not have the capacity for it, honestly. They are generally aggressive when asked about intimacy or sexual matters. This is not something to bring up if you think someone may be a predator. Lastly, predators try to maintain an image that allows parents and children to continue to trust them. This is another reason why many of them will volunteer for events where children are. If you have noticed these traits in anyone you know, they may be a predator. Chapter 3. Hypnosis Now, the subconscious may not really be part of hypnosis. Studies vary on this. Hypnosis is best described as an altered state of consciousness where a person loses voluntary action and is responsive to suggestion. It is controversial, of course, as all things are when it comes to the mind. However, let us take into consideration that this is a practiced science, science being nothing exact and theory is always needing new proof. Even by its own definition, science is not science, and hypnosis has been around for more than a hundred years. With this wiggle room in mind, the mind can be altered by many various means. Those means, combined with the response to suggestion, can be a playground for the dark. The truth is that hypnosis does not happen to be the truly hostile. Duress can be a deterrent to the practice of hypnosis. It requires a willing mind, or possibly a neutral one. When we are discussing dark psychology, we are talking about control and manipulation. So, we will be looking at maneuvering individuals using various hypnosis techniques to possibly alter action and maybe even belief. We are going to look at a few forms of hypnosis and then look at how the dark can be applied. First, we will take a look at some of the facets of hypnosis and the various degrees of mild to extreme. Mesmerism. Mesmerism is the study and belief that there is a magnetic force that connects all life. This is referred to as animal magnetism. Believed or not, there is something to be said about the attraction of animals. Let us talk about magnets for a moment. Positive and negative attract to their like. It is something we can measure with instruments. Mesmerism is more than just this flow of electricity. It is about attraction. Attraction as a whole is not defined. That there are too many ways to apply it and measuring the impossible is something science gets a little stuck on. Attraction. From this aspect, we refer to the attraction of predator and prey. There is also the attraction to animals of the same species. Attraction to another species, like a pet, is also a form of magnetism. We are attracted to things we like and we are attracted to things we want. Our attractions change through our lifetime. It is human nature to change. Attractions change with us. This animal magnetism can be a tool of the dark. It is the charm we have talked about before. This magnetism holds its victims in a trance, mesmerized. It is animal by nature. It is animal by instinct. It is animal because we are. The hustler is part of this dynamic. This is the cornerstone of the con. When someone is mesmerized, they are caught in the freeze position, and the things happening around them are not seen in a clear light. The charmer has a wide latitude at this point. Hypnotism. There are many ways to induce hypnotic behavior, as there are to define it. Here is the reason why it is such a controversial subject. 
since there are so many different ways to put someone into a suggestive state, hypnotism is more of a practice than a science. In fact, there are innumerable ways of putting an individual into a hypnotic state, some not discovered yet due to the evolution of the human mind. A watch on the end of a chain, swinging back and forth, is the age-old image of taking the mind from an active state to a suggestible one. Now, is it the swing of the watch back and forth, back and forth, or is it the shiny glint of the light off the gold casing, glistening and shimmering, glistening and shimmering? Your eyelids are getting heavy. Sleep. The main thing that keeps us occupied and takes us from one mental place to another is the repetition of it all. The spinning of a coin can hypnotize us. The state of hypnosis is a dangerous one for the individual receiving. Almost all practitioners of the art of hypnosis talk about suggestibility while the subject is under. The ability to place suggestion into another can be a very aggressive tool in the world of dark psychology. And in the form of hypnotherapy, it can be a healing tool for the dark. We are here, however, to examine whether or not we are being hypnotized and how to keep it from happening. Is it possible to put darkness into us with hypnosis? There is some truth that anything that is suggestive can be inserted into someone under the influence. Whomever is around us during the process can control what is put into us. That brings us to hypnotic suggestion. This is the focus of the mind to a single dominant idea. When we remove the debate that the mind can be put into a suggestive state and take into consideration that we are all capable of suggestions, the knowledge of how those suggestions get into us is just as important as the suggestions themselves. It is said that suggestion defines hypnosis. A suggestion can come at us in many different ways, from the spoken word to the hint of an idea. It can be innuendo or a direct concept. It has been shown that the mind, in a moment of hypnosis, can comprehend many different things in many different ways. Let's take a quick look at autosuggestion. Autosuggestion is self-induced suggestion. It is the repetition of a self-made statement to change the outcome, or possibly even the belief, of our minds. It is far from any form of altered state. It is a very controlled hypnotherapy. Considering that we can change our own existence and beliefs, and often our habits by auto-suggesting a thought to ourselves, what happens when an outside source continuously suggests something to us? When we talk about dark psychology, we can look at the subtle and how we become hypnotized by repetition and suggestion. There is a science of the screen, that screen of light that you talk into, that screen of light that you watch for entertainment, that screen of light you work on on a daily basis. This screen is flashing at you at a very rapid rate. Well, in actuality, it is not so much flashing as it is redrawing pixels one by one from one section of the screen to another. It is hypnotizing you. Subliminal messages and suggestions can be placed in between the flashes. These we voluntarily accept so that we can stare at the blinking screen. It relaxes us. It becomes almost addictive. Some can say that the true practitioners of dark psychology play here. The grand masters of what we choose and to not choose, the ones who teach us how to love and live and want and believe. It is the learning tool of the age. It is also a direct line to our minds, more direct than we give it credit for. This book is written on a refreshing screen. This is memorization taking place, hypnosis taking place, 
Darkness can be suggested at a moment's notice. Is it dark? That is up to interpretation. There are some tests we can do in someone benefiting from us being suggested to, and is that suggestion hurting or hindering us in any way? Is there a vampire among us suggesting something to us? Is there a force pushing us mentally, pressuring us mentally, and is it dark? All of these things are possible, and diligence will allow truth to finally prevail. In the case of dark psychology, hypnosis is an extremely strong tool for manipulation. When we are subdued by something that trances us, we become susceptible and easy to manipulate. It is when we are of crisp, clear mind that the forces of darkness get stuck. In all cases of hypnosis, there is a form of willingness that comes from the recipient. For example, we all look at the refreshing screen. The CIA and the military showed us that the use of hypnosis on unwilling subjects is unreliable. There is plenty of research showing that true mind control with the use of hypnosis is just not viable. They do hint that suggestibility is possible, however the application of that has not been released to the general public. So, are we suggestible by the dark? Of course we are. Repetition is where it's all at. It is the repeating of things that makes our ears perk up and we begin to take notice. When things are repeated to us over and over again, we begin to believe them to be true even when we have not experienced them by action. This is one of the true forms of darkness. Hypnotic suggestion and repetition can be used to place suggestion by the dark. How we act on those suggestions is how we react to dark implementation. There is no evil genius twirling a mustache and sending in mind-altering suggestions for us to eat a certain brand of cereal. Or is there? So, what is dark? It is the violation of suggestions coming at us in a flurry of daily data, dark and evil. Is it the act of using media evil? Is it the violation of mind itself, regardless of suggestion, simply dark? These questions are best left to the philosophers. This is about psychology and not philosophy. Is it possible to psychologically manipulate someone with hypnosis? The consensus says yes, if they are willing. So, when you keep watching those screens, you are subconsciously processing whatever is being projected into your mind from a flash of anywhere between 30 and 60 frames per second. The eyes see them all. The mind appreciates repetition. When those subliminal messages come into your mind over and over again, you become hypnotized, mesmerized, and susceptible to suggestion. And if you were to accept that the source of those images coming at you are genuine, think of what or who is projecting them at you. A corporation? A business? An individual? Do they have your best interest in mind? Or are they just pushing a product? Intention is a measurable way to determine light or dark. So, watch what you watch, and watch what watch is waved. Have a little diligence and turn off the flashing screen once in a while. Chapter 4. Seduction. Those eyes look at you from across the room. Bashfully, you look up and meet their gaze. There is a glint of desire in them. Oh my, they find you attractive. You love to be found attractive. Your heart swells. They stand up. Are they coming to you? Did you stare at them for too long? No, wait. They are coming right at you. What do you do? A chair gets pulled out and they sit down. What bravery. What confidence. A part of you is repelled, and yet another part of you is in total awe. They are not saying anything. 
Nothing is being said. It's a smile. Entrancement. This is the seduction. There are many forms of seduction, from the desire between two individuals to the desire for a new refrigerator. Desire and seduction are everywhere. In dark psychology, we find that the skill of seduction can allow for massive manipulation. So, what is seduction? Attraction. To attract powerfully is a strong definition of seduction. This is a skill like any other. It can be honed and worked on with experience and practice. The things that attract us are indeed unique. However, there are some basic things that attract us all, like comfort and stability. Most find these things to be very attractive. Those who can provide it, or the illusion of it, can indeed persuade us. This is a form of the allure. Allure is the quality of attraction. It is the thing that draws us. Allure is a powerful accomplice to seduction. They go hand in hand, seduction being the act and the allure being the draw. In speaking of the act, there is allure when it comes to seduction. Allure is something that baits something. It is the morsel at the end of the string. When used properly, the lure can pull individuals from where they are to where the person on the other end of seduction wants them to be. And there are many forms of the lure, one being temptation. To tempt is the attraction to the things that are not necessarily beneficial to us. They can be an indicator of darkness, although not necessarily. When we are tempted by something, we need to stop and look at what is tempting us and why. The temptation is the reasoning behind the attraction. It is often logical and explains the lure in an innocent light. A more mellow version of the temptation is the entice. The entice is the offering of pleasure or advantage. It is more formal than the temptation, yet it is less pressuring. Enticement shows its hand by showing you what is possible. Enticement does not necessarily lead to seduction. Beguile. When we talk about the enchantment of beguile, we begin to stumble into deception. This is a form of seduction for sure. It is not simply the seducing part of the process. Beguile is included with trickery to get what is needed. This can be considered very dark, and the ability to beguile is practiced by those who manipulate. When we are being wheedled, we are being moved by this flattery. Wheel and wheedle. It is the movement of seduction. When we are unable to move, we are considered to be ensnared. Ensnarement can happen during seduction in everything from actual handcuffs to the ensnarement of the heart and mind. It is the freeze of the hunted, ensnared by seduction. The cornerstone of seduction is charm. Charm is the charismatic ability to bring about almost everything listed above. From flattery to allure, charm can be the core of it all. We have talked a little about charm when it comes to manipulation. Charm combined with seduction is deadly. Seduction captivates. It is the essence that draws us so that we cannot look away. When considering everything from the gruesome to the sublime, captivation is encompassing seduction. When we are captivated, we are not necessarily ensnared. One captivated is not as secure as one ensnared. The captivated can most likely walk away. Then, seduction pulls out another card and enchants the spell. There is no science here. There is only magic. This magic of enchantment is yet another form of seduction. Yes, enchantment is a lure and an enticement for desire. It has another form. It's a wonderment that there is something bigger than what we already know. When we are enchanted, we get lost in what we know and do not know.
Hypnotize and mesmerize are part of seduction when removed from the practice of the art. This means that these concepts are not just practiced art of putting someone into an altered state for the process of suggestion. Wait a minute. Yes, they are. They are part of seduction. Yet another reason to have difficulty in measuring the science of hypnotherapy. This gray area, it is prime for dark psychology. Back to seduction. Seduction is about the tantalize. It is the torment or tease, the offering of the unobtainable. Achieving this unobtainable thing is not the goal of the tantalize. It is the process of seduction that defines it. Tantalize is the promise during seduction. Seduction titillates. Titillation is the excitement we feel when we are being seduced. This tingling can be a little tickle to a grand encompassing distraction. There is an effect seduction has upon us. It is the physical sensation mixed with the mental that makes seduction the wondering and destructive force that it is. If we do not watch out, we can become bewitched. Alongside enchantment and delight, there is bewitched. We are once again going beyond the normal into the magical. Believe in magic or not, being bewitched takes on a role that goes beyond titillation or even basic seduction. There is the magic of control here, a surrender to a force that is not really definable. Being bewitched takes us out of ourselves and puts us into a place of controlled magic. Or could just be another word for enchantment. When we turn up the volume of seduction, we start to get into ravaging. When we ravage another, it is almost a devouring. This is starting to become an even more destructive force. Ravage is part of seduction. Some like to be ravaged, and in this, there is a surrender that can be relatively harmful. When we are inveigled or led astray, this is a prime opportunity to become trapped. The trap is most certifiably a part of seduction. From the innocent capture of someone's affections to the forcible complete surrender of a trapped animal, the trap is the conclusion of seduction taking place. It is extremely interesting how often we go to seduction. There is a belief that it is a combination of things. From the basic core drive us to be a part of society to the desire to be wanted, seduction takes us there. It also allows us to surrender to it. There is a peace in the surrender to another, a high of being trapped. When an animal gets caged or trapped, no matter how evolved we get, humans are animals. When trapped or tied up, we eventually get to the point where we know we cannot escape and we vacate from ourselves. It is in this surrender that we feel the swept motion. Seduction can take us there, the trap leading to the sweep. And for some, that is all life needs. For those who practice in the dark, this area is a primal hunting ground. To take down prey with seduction fulfills a very primal understanding of what emotion is. When both parties participate and understand ground rules, seduction is a playful thing. With darkness and the psychological ability to control and manipulate, our moments of emotions during seduction become very vulnerable. So what happens to a predator when they take down prey in the form of seduction? There is a win that takes place. It is a win without blood or death. Seduction allows the dark practitioner the ability to hone and show skill without doing physical damage. We are talking about mental damage, though. The mental is what psychology is all about. What is the mental damage done when seduction is used for evil? From the side of the victim, there is a loss of trust. This trust can keep them from reinvesting in another who might be better for them. It is the aftershock of what happens when you are used by someone who has selfish tendencies and make it so that it is all about them.
Whatever drives the predator does not really matter. It is the victim that suffers over time. Seduction at the hands of someone evil is damaging on a scale of immense emotional turmoil. Seduction can even cause suicide as well as permanent scarring. When the predator does not have empathy for the prey in any way, this is where we can start to somewhat measure darkness. Seduction is the process of the hunt. It is the primary tool for a primal situation that has been developed for a very long time. It is no wonder that we fall into it so easily. Let's be honest. The human race has populated itself up to date with various forms of primal predator and prey. It is part of us. Being prey or predator is natural. Under safe conditions, it can be enjoyable and even loving. In the world of dark psychology, there is a different meaning as to what the outcome needs to be when one person seduces another. Control. What happens after this seduction takes place? Is there a moment where seduction is not enough to keep controlling the prey? Yes. Seduction only takes us so far in control. It can be re-administered with a balance of charm to ensnare prey again and again. Yet there are greater tools that the dark use to keep control over others when seduction begins to wear off. One of these tools is the lie. Lies are complex, convoluted, and honestly not really defined due to the unlimited ways in which they can be used. Lies are a control mechanism of dark psychology. So, we better take a look. Chapter 5. Some Expressions of Dark Psychology It is said that in every one of us there is the capacity for all manner of malevolence. For some, however, this is not merely a latent capacity. These individuals exhibit the various imaginations arising from their dark subconscious and conscious thoughts in varying degrees. For some, it is little more than petty crimes. But you can also expect some truly terrifying characters. In this chapter... We will discuss variations of antisocial activities arising from the sale continuum and the psychology propelling them. The arsonist. This crime involves the deliberate setting of a fire, especially when it is done with malevolent intent. Usually, it is done in protest or retribution, and the object that is set on fire is public property or private property which does not belong to the arsonist. Often, when arson is mentioned, the first image in people's minds is one of a burning house or building. Arsonists may set other kinds of properties, real or personal, aflame. The list of things which could be set on fire by an arsonist also includes forest fires. In some cases, the arsonist is careful not to endanger human lives, but there are many instances where there are confirmed human casualties, and this could be a result of negligence on the part of the arsonist, whereby the loss of human life is completely unintended. Sometimes, the human fatality may be deliberate and, as such, considered murder. There are a number of motivating factors which could lead a person to commit arson, one of which is insurance fraud. This is committed by property owners who hope to trick the institution responsible for upholding their insurance policy. Such characters would, intentionally, set their own properties on fire and claim that it happened as a result of other causes rather than their own direct involvement. The most common cause of arson is linked to the disorder known as pyromania. Pyromaniacs are often separated from arsonists because, unlike the latter, pyromania is an impulsive disorder. The urge for fire setting in such individuals is so strong that many prove powerless to it, and the bliss after they have committed the arson is usually a rewarding feeling for them. 
But whether intentional or the result of a controlling disorder, the result is often the same. People who are more prone to having pyromania are those who were abused in their childhood. This is especially evident in cases of sexual abuse. There is also a study which indicates that the act of fire setting, which can be described as arson, as a young person, is a precursor to schizophrenia later in life. People with depression and those who abuse drugs have an increased probability of becoming arsonists. Arson can so easily be committed that every year an average of 60,000 cases of intentional fire setting are reported yearly in countries like the United States of America and England. This accounts for millions and even billions of pounds and dollars in losses. Also, hundreds of people lose their lives to this raging menace yearly, with about a thousand reported casualties. The Serial Killer Popularized by fan fiction and crime documentaries, serial killers are some of the most feared criminals in history. Serial killing is one that involves concurrent murders by an individual with only a few months. There is often a particular method to these killings, either in the type of victims, the nature of the murder, or the time period between each killing. Serial killers are seen as human predators, and they often embody some behavioral and psychological qualities as actual predators of the wild. The motivation behind serial killing of any kind is not limited to just one. There's quite a few reasons why a person would, as they say, snap. These include anger, retribution, the thrill of it, or to get the attention of any or everyone. The serial killer may keep trophies of his or her kill. This means they keep strange collections of parts of the whole of their victims. Some other serial killers may engage in sexual relations with their victims before they kill them, during the killing, or with the corpse. As is often the case, serial killers feel no remorse for their actions and may only regret getting caught. Ted Bundy, a name many have come to associate with the words deranged serial killer, is quoted as saying, I don't feel guilty for anything, as he was questioned about the numerous lives which had been extinguished by his hands. Their drive to kill may be as impulsive as an obsessive-compulsive disorder. The psychological and sexual gratification after a successful kill is no less than those experienced by pyromaniacs. Serial killers are classified as psychopaths, this is because of how detached they can be from the suffering of others. In fact, they may be unable to experience emotional pain like normal, everyday people. There is an ongoing debate as to whether or not psychopathy, as in the case of serial killers, is rooted in the DNA. Although it has been proven that psychopathic tendencies are related to abnormal brain functions, whereby it does not accurately interpret the information received by the amygdala. Some of the names which pop up when serial killers are mentioned include Ted Bundy, probably an infamous household name. He would capture his female victims, sexually abuse them, and then kill them before dismembering the corpses. Often, he would even keep the severed head of his victims as kind of souvenir. He may have murdered well over 30 individuals. The name Jeffrey Dahmer would probably make most people pause and shiver in fear. He was a serial killer, but the act he was most feared for was cannibalism. As far as deranged can be defined, Jeffrey Dahmer did many of what would expect of a psychopath. He would rape, dismember, and then consume the remains of his victims as a meal. He even performed certain experiments with his victims, which included attempting to turn them into his slaves by boring holes into their skulls. Although he very likely must have killed a lot more than 17 people, 
He was convicted of only that number of murders. Pedro Lopez continues to inspire terror in the hearts of many who remember his murdering spree. This is because, although he may no longer be a suspect of any recent killings, no one can determine his location. Pedro Lopez, in the time when he was known as the Monster of the Andes, was a pedophile, rapist, and serial killer. Of the over 300 people he confessed to killing, the law convicted him of the murder of 110 girls. After spending 18 years in jail for his crimes, Pedro Lopez was released on good behavior. When a killer sends an extremely graphic letter to the mother of one of his victims detailing the manner in which the murder was carried out, it becomes clear how absolutely twisted the character is. Albert Fish was that person. His primary focus was on little children, whom he would rape and eat. While he proudly claimed to have been responsible for the murders of more than a hundred children, he was convicted of only three of them. He was especially crafty at luring the innocent kids who met a fate the fashion of horror movies. After forcefully having sexual intercourse with the children, he would kill and cut them up in pieces to be eaten over a period of time. The Necrophiliac Necrophilia, simply put, is used to define sexual intercourse with a dead body. Those who engage in such acts find themselves only attracted to corpses and may not find living human beings to be sexually appealing. But these characteristics do not account for the majority of the reason why certain individuals practice necrophilia, at least not according to Resnick and Rossman. Their study revealed that the need to be in control of a sexual partner who does not reject or struggle with them surpasses every other need. Going by the same study, an attraction to dead bodies only accounts for 15% of the reason why some individuals are necrophiliacs. The issue with such topics as necrophilia is its pathology and how to classify its several variations properly. Acts of necrophilia occur in different ways and cannot all be grouped into one category. Agrawal, a professor of forensic medicine, was able to differentiate necrophilia into ten categories. They include, in no particular order, role players, romantic necrophiles, necrophiliac fantasizers, homicidal necrophiliacs, tactile necrophiliacs, fetestic necrophiliacs, necromutilomaniacs, exclusive necrophiliacs, opportunistic necrophiliacs, and regular necrophiliacs. These categories serve to differentiate according to the style of necrophilia and the severity of the crime. Like many other individuals who have committed acts of extreme depravity, many necrophiliacs have decent enough IQs. One would expect that to perpetuate an act so vile, the character must be mentally challenged, but the data provided by Rossman and Resnick would beg to disagree. Only 11% of the 122 necrophilia cases studied by them proved to be psychotic. The rest had fairly high intelligence, although most of them did have personality disorders. One question which was asked frequently about necrophiliacs is whether the behavior is a mental disorder or not. Professionals in the field of mental health do not regard it as a mental illness. In fact, as opposed to what the everyday guy might feel about sexual intercourse with a corpse, it is not all that abnormal to psychologists. There are individuals who prefer to copulate with cars, dolls, and other inanimate items. As such, necrophilia is listed as a type of paraphilia. Since the corpse would be unable to give consent, necrophilia cannot be said to be non-consensual intercourse. It is also for this reason that some consider the act to be fetishistic, although there is little to substantiate this. If you have wondered as to whether necrophilia is something peculiar to the human male species, 
then you might be right. Although there have been many cases of women participating in necrophilia, men hold a greater percentage of this behavior. In the research by Rossman and Resnick, it was shown that, of the candidates chosen for their study, the necrophiliacs who were men made up 95%. Whether this implies that men are more likely to be necrophiliacs is yet to be determined. Finally, necrophilia is not a modern phenomenon. It goes back to the embalmers of ancient Egypt, and even way before then. It is only now that we begin to understand, with very little steps, the pathology behind the act. Still, there is a lot more to learn about paraphilia. Chapter 6. Understanding Dark Persuasion and Covert Persuasion A speaker can influence a person and their beliefs, attitudes, intentions, motivations, and or behaviors, and it is often used for a person's own personal gain. Immanuel Kant's argument that the only rational way that we can even try to manipulate people or their behavior is through rational persuasion. He makes it known that anything else is just immoral and unethical. If this is the case, how can any form of persuasion be anything but rational? How can any part of persuasion be dark if we are given a choice on what to decide? The difference between persuasion and dark persuasion is the intent. A regular persuader might try to convince their friend to do something without putting much thought into it. They might even be concerned with creating the most good for the most people. This is often true of a diplomat who wants to prevent war between two world powers through creating a political friendship where one had never existed before. This is not the case with a dark persuader. Their intention is different. They know exactly what they are doing, and they are fully aware of the bigger picture. One of the things about this type of persuader is that they understand who they are trying to persuade, what their motivation is, and how far they need to go to get what they want. The persuader doesn't contemplate morality in this case because it won't get them what they want. They will find a way to get what they want by any means necessary. Subliminal messages have been known as the dark art of persuasion for years. People often connect subliminal messages with conspiracy theories against politicians or advertisers and state that the messages are used to manipulate our minds and diminish or change our behaviors. One of the most important things about subliminal messages is that we can never become consciously aware of this type of stimulus, no matter how hard we try. The next thing we need to know is that those who believe in subliminal messages believe that it is a real result of communication that has been deliberately designed to generate a response from people and get them to do things that they wouldn't normally do. All of this happens on the subconscious level. However, we need to make a distinction between subliminal and superliminal. Superliminal is the opposite of subliminal because even though it evokes responses that consequently influence our behaviors, it can be viewed through the conscious mind. Freud came up with the term subconscious, which refers to the part of our brain that works on the lower level of our conscious awareness. It is a secret place where we hide our desires, motives, and past experiences that we no longer share with our conscious mind. Our conscious mind gives us executive control of our mind. With our consciousness, we can think, judge, feel, and experience with awareness. Hogan and Speakman, 2013. This is not the case with our subconscious. 
Our subconscious is always on autopilot and is more powerful than our regular consciousness when it comes to processing information. This can be dangerous because if someone is using subliminal messages to change how we are thinking or behaviors, you are not conscious of what is happening, and that can be scary. What else can they make you do? And how do you stop it? Covert Persuasion Covert persuasion is one of the most effective kinds of persuasion, and one of the scary things is that the tactics used are completely ethical. They are considered sneaky and underhanded, but they are still ethical. The reason why they are considered dark and dangerous is that they are subtle and seamless, and no one will ever notice that you are even using these tactics. But the tactics will help you convince people to make the choices that you want. This type of persuasion's goal is to change the mind of your client, audience, etc., without them being aware that their minds are being changed. When their minds are being changed, they will want to purchase your product, try the service you are offering, vote for the candidate you are endorsing, or donate to their idea. Knowing what words to use is the best way to change your audience's mind. People are often influenced by a smooth talker, hence the art of rhetoric. There was an experiment that was led by a memory researcher in the 70s that used words to influence participants in the experiment. The participants were shown slides of an accident with a pedestrian and a car, as well as a red Datsun by a yield sign. The participants were asked if they see another car pass the Datsun at the stop sign. However, there was no stop sign in the picture, but there was a yield sign. Once all the participants heard the question, most of them remembered the stop sign and not the yield sign. When the researcher changed one word in the question, she changed what the participants had seen with their own eyes. Here are eight steps that explain how to use covert persuasion. Identify the source of the problem or situation. This problem is something that you or your company no longer wants to experience. It can be high costs, inventory spoilage, ineffective advertising, anything that is not working well within the company that needs to be solved. Help your audience, customers, etc. see that if the problem is not fixed, that it will create painful costs on the company. This tactic is highly psychological because it triggers the pain button and makes them feel it before they are aware of how the product, service, or what your company or you can do personally to help. Give your audience the power and ask them what the preferred outcome is. It is important to make sure they choose the best outcome. You can ask, what would you like to happen? Or, what would be the best result for you? Next, you want to ask your audience to recognize the good and negative consequences of their choice. This will help them to accept their decision. You can ask them, what will this decision do for you? Their response is actually forming a new thought direction that will eventually lead them to need what you are offering them. Confirm that the desired result is what they really want. People often tell others what they think they want to hear. In order to succeed in persuading them, the audience has to be truthful about what they need and if making this decision is right for them. This is where you come in. You have to be sure that the result will be good for the audience. It doesn't help you at all if they agree and then turn around and change their mind. You need to know that they will benefit from all aspects of their decision, which includes what you are offering them. One rule that you need to follow is not to be judgmental about possible negative responses. The audience might have totally different views than you, and this is why it is important to know your audience. Take the time to understand and relate to them. Then, the responses will actually become clearer. 
Another thing to remember is never to tell your audience members that they are wrong. This will put them on the defensive, and they will want to prove that they are right more than listening to what you have to say. It will turn them off with what you are selling them. Remember, covert persuasion is subtle. Most of the time, your audience never catches on and thinks that the decision they are making is what they really want, probably because you sold it up. The only way that it works is changing their mind without them knowing it. Covert persuasion and when no means yes. Have you ever rented a car and been adamant that you didn't want insurance but somehow walked away with it anyway? Have you wondered how they got you to believe that you needed something that you didn't want in the first place? There is a sort of power and control within the resounding no. The rental agent already knows that you are going to walk in telling them what you want and don't want. Most people do not want the extra insurance because they have their own insurance and feel like paying extra for more insurance isn't worth it, especially when you probably aren't going to need it. The resounding no is so common that it is something salespeople don't even pay attention to anymore. It is an instant reaction that is driven by the fear of getting swindled into doing something that you do not want. So you walk in already with your mind made up. However. The rental agent found a way to get you to buy the product still. Think about it. Before you even work on your contract, they go outside and walk you around the cars. During this time, they ask you questions about your trip, what you need it for, and then they start telling you about the amenities of the car, that they carry car seats, and they sell you the coverage based on what appeals to you through the conversation you had. You felt like you had a great conversation with the salesperson. But in reality, they were using the time to prey on you, because they know what you will need on this trip you are taking, and how far they have to offer will alleviate your stress and/or solve your problem. When changing your audience's answer from no to yes, it is about understanding how they make decisions, what appeals to them by testing the waters, how they remember things, and how they look into the future. Most of the time, people remember important dramatic experiences that turn out badly. The rental agent might ask you if you have car insurance, and you tell them that you have what the law requires because you own your car. This is when they realize that they want to protect their car, but they also want to make you think that they are protecting you from having to pay tons of money out of your pocket. So they will tell you that they have rental coverage that covers the car bumper to bumper. It's only eleven to fourteen dollars a day, depending on the car size, and there is no deductible. If anything happens to the car, It will be covered, and you will just walk away without paying a dime. This might sound appealing to the customer, but they still feel like they don't need it, so they tell the rental agent no again. This is when the agent moves to a story to sway the customer. The agent tells the customer that they totally understand how they feel, telling them that they buy the coverage doesn't help. They need to tell them a story that they will remember, a dramatic one, which will sway them to their side. The agent brings up an encounter with a previous customer who felt the same way as the current one. The customer was adamant about not getting the coverage that covered the car and rented the car without it. Another car ended up hitting them in the parking lot, and they walked back in asking if they could get the coverage. The rental agent ended up ending the rental contract and not giving them the coverage because it is illegal to sell it after the rental agreement has been made and after an accident. The customer ended up paying for the damages out of their pocket. As well as the life of the rental in the shop, which means they had to pay the amount of the rental up to five days, all because they didn't want to pay an extra thirty dollars. 
The current customer ended up purchasing the coverage that covered the car. When the agent was telling the story to the new customer, all they remembered was the outcome of the crash in the parking lot. They didn't remember anything else about the story, just that they didn't want to go through what the previous customer went through. Covert persuasion can be used in different situations, especially when you are trying to win and bring them over to your side. On the side of customer service, you want to talk about your competitor and discuss their past experiences because if they were really satisfied with that experience, they wouldn't be talking to you. One of the things that you have to do is make sure that you don't scare them away so that they do not want to purchase from you. Have them tell you a story of a great purchase experience they had. This helps you from not scaring them off because you are having them remember a fun experience. For instance, if you are a stockbroker and the potential customer is someone who has lost money in the stock market, you will understand why they don't want to risk money again. But isn't that the risk with the stock market? You're not going to make money every time. The broker has to be careful in this situation, and they cannot guarantee the potential customer or investor that they will not lose money again. That would be a lie and that will break their trust right there. The broker has to point out that it is a possibility that they would lose money again. However, it is more likely that they will get typical returns with their investment. Persuasion research is very clear, especially with covert persuasion. The speaker must show the audience both possible outcomes for them to be successful. If the speaker doesn't indicate that the investor might lose money in the stock market, they will continue to be afraid of it and choose not to invest with your brokerage firm. When you show them that losing money is a possibility, you also show them what else could happen within reason. If you make it sound too good to be true, the possible investor will feel like they are being manipulated and they will still choose not to go with your firm's offer. By keeping it realistic, there is a high chance that they will succumb to your persuasions. Be clear with your message delivery. If the possible investor lost the first half of the game, they need to come in strong during the second half. Never let what happened in the past determine what they could possibly achieve in the future. The whole idea of persuading people is to take away their fear of saying yes, which is normal. People tend to have a fear of the unknown and how their life will change. If you are trying to help someone quit smoking, the person will resist at first because the fear of deterring from their normal routine is too much for them. To help them overcome this fear, you will have to substitute their current fear with one that is far worse. Basically, you are scaring them beyond their worst fears. For instance, the speaker tells the person that if they continue to keep smoking every day, that it is going to cause you to die. Can you imagine your kids and grandkids standing over your casket? They will remember you the way you looked in that casket. The idea of their family looking over their dead body scares them, especially when it is something that they could have prevented. This is when the speaker makes the fear less painful by helping them cut down. Tell them to start small by cutting down to half a pack a day this month, then only one every other day next month, and by the next month, you don't need them anymore. Wouldn't it be great to show your family that you don't need to smoke? Wouldn't it be great to show them how healthy you are? The speaker used fear to persuade the person to stop smoking and then gave them a set of instructions that will help them with the new decision that they made. The person was able to see how changing their life and going with what you wanted wasn't hard if they worked at it. They weren't going to be worse off because of the decision, but actually better. So once the speaker is able to change or is persuaded to do what you want them to do, they should be happy that they listened to you and took your advice. 
whether it be to change their attitude or behavior or purchase what they are selling. This is not always the case, though. There is a principle known as option attachment. Someone has a choice to purchase one of two puppies. Either puppy would be a good pet to her, but each one is different. They ponder which puppy they could see themselves keeping, and no matter which one they choose, even though they are not aware of it, that the other puppy will appear to be better of the two because the person did not choose them. Wouldn't they feel good about the choice they made? You would think they would be happy, relieved, or even comfortable with their decision, yet they are miserable. They start to question the decision they made. When someone is left thinking about their options too long, they tend to think that whatever they choose, they are losing something by not choosing the other thing. The initial problem is the choice they are left with. The person feels a sense of disappointment and loss when they realize that they have let the other option go. Persuasion research indicates that it doesn't matter if the person has personally experienced both options set in front of them or just imagining one. Whatever option they choose, the other one becomes more attractive because they cannot have it. The second factor of option attachment is the feeling of loss. The person felt attached to the other option when they were deliberating. There are two ways to help counteract option attachment. Don't let the person feel any sort of attachment to both of the options. You don't want them to feel a sense of loss. So make sure that they don't have a lot of time to make the decision. Tell them that the decision has to be fast. If you have to give them more than one option, make the better option more attractive to them so they don't spend a lot of time making a decision. Don't let them feel connected with something that they are never going to have. Give them info about the option and then make them understand why it is not feasible. One of the things that the speaker can do is to use the option attachment principle to their advantage. If the person is resisting everything that you are doing to persuade them to your side, you can't make them feel attached to what you want them to do, making it an easy decision for them. For instance, going back to the puppy scenario from earlier, the person selling the puppies can tell the prospective owner to take one of the puppies home and return it if they don't want it. When the person takes the puppy home, they start to get attached and feel a sense of ownership of it. It is hard to give up that feeling without experiencing loss. Covert persuasion that does work for the speaker starts with the idea that a person's internal beliefs can change when an outside force triggers a transformation. This is where cause and effect work in the scheme of things, i.e. the crash story from earlier. You tell the person that someone else, like your competitor, bought your product and it immensely increased productivity. Even though the cause and effect arguments are full of holes, statistical arguments tend to confuse people. They really want to make an easy decision and not to have to be challenged with thinking. This is why it can be so easy to persuade them if done right. People tend to fight for their own beliefs, then switch them. That is why winning an argument makes you feel good. There are tactics that can be used to help persuade people to do what you want. Get the person to write things down. This gets them to participate in the sales process or the current argument or debate. They could write down important information you are giving them, goals for the coming year, what they want in a car or a house, write information on a stock portfolio, or even a timeshare package. The key is to get the person to participate in the process. Build a stronger rapport with your situational audience. If they like you enough as a person, they will probably respond to you positively and buy whatever you are selling them. You can do this by sharing a part of yourself with your audience. This builds trust because they start to think that you become vulnerable in front of them 
and continuing to open up to show that you two share some of the same interests increases this type of bond. Synchronize with your audience. If you resemble your audience in appearance or personality, your voice, breathing, posture, etc., people tend to respond to others that look and act like them. They tend to feel more comfortable. Once you are in sync with your audience, you can take the lead. You will know it is working when the other person is mimicking you as well. Get the audience to move around if your persuasion attempt is not working. It has been proven that motion can bring forth emotion. You can either stand up, walk around the room, take the person out to lunch or coffee. Changing the location and physical position can help change the state of their mind. Induce reciprocity. Building rapport helps you build a foundation of concern, compassion, caring interest, and a desire for your audience's well-being. It's an important way to make them feel like you are building a strong bond with you. When you pace and lead your audience, the process creates a sense of comfort for both of you because you are moving along at their pace. After the rapport is built, you can move on to your presentation. After using the tactics, it is important to use the right words, questions, and stories to deliver the message you want to tell your subject. Some powerful words that you can use are you, money, save, results, health, easy, love, discovery, proven, new, safety, and guarantee. Ask them questions that help keep you in control of the thought processes from the audience. You have to remember that the other person won't be conscious of your persuasion techniques. They will feel like they are in control of the decisions they make, even if you lead them to the decisions. Once they make these decisions, they become committed to them because they are their choice. This is very important in the art of persuasion. The speaker never wants to just win the sale. They want to win the audience for life. Hogan and Speakman, 2013. Chapter 7. How to Operate Somebody's Emotions Using Charisma As you know, each individual is a kind of unique personality with its own, formed over a period of life, features. Those features that not only make it possible to distinguish one person from another as a person, but also, sometimes, cause confrontation and emerging contradictions within society. And then already, a mask comes to the rescue which is a certain, almost fictional image projected by an individual from his ideas about the world onto himself. Thanks to the mask that helped us, it is possible not only to establish a kind of communication contact, but also to achieve some kind of position in society in such a way increasing his status. The concept of charisma comes from the Greek Harris, which translates as a gift from God. But is charisma an innate ability, or can it be developed in oneself? Let's try to answer this question. No one doubts that it is charisma that makes the leader a leader, whom people are ready to follow with inspiration. The charismatic boss is able to motivate the team to accomplish much more than increase in salary. Some sociologists define charisma as supernormal, and charismatics as a person with supernatural powers. After analyzing thousands of famous leaders, they came to the conclusion that charisma is a set of certain qualities. A charismatic leader who is able to manipulate crowds or separated personalities should possess the following traits. Concentration not on oneself but on one's employees. Effective leadership always means that the leader perfectly understands the features of his team. What is suitable for these is not suitable for others. Therefore, to be a charismatic leader, 
you need to understand your subordinates well and be in contact with them. The stronger the relationship is, the better it gets. When employees communicate with a charismatic boss, they feel his authority and even some greatness. Extroversion. Charisma of the leader involves active recruitment and involvement of employees in the work, so it is difficult to imagine that the charismatic boss was constantly locked in. The charismatic is always alert and charges others with his energy. This does not mean that an introvert cannot be a charismatic person, but he will have to try hard because contacts with people deplete him, while an extrovert, on the contrary, is fueled by them. Brilliant Negotiation a charismatic leader is not easy to be a sociable person. He has the gift to be especially expressive and accurate in his message. He can tell an interesting story on the occasion and give an example. His conversation flows smoothly and fascinatingly. He knows how to express his feelings frankly. Empathy. In order to be charismatic, the ability to involve employees in the work and find contact with them is not enough. Empathy is without which the leader will never become a charismatic. Aristotle also identified empathy as an indicator of character and fortitude. People are always able to determine sincere sympathy. Therefore, the leader will not be able to establish strong emotional ties with employees if he does not demonstrate that he actually understands and accepts the interests of others. Without a doubt, Charisma is not so much an innate gift as a skill that can be developed and improved before it grows into true leadership. Influence on the masses can be achieved both by an imperious and decisive person and one who doubts himself. A charismatic person can become either an open extrovert personality or a closed introvert, a person prone to research and one who takes action. The vain Benito Mussolini, the vulnerable dictator Steve Jobs, a lover of women, and luxury is Silvio Bersoloni. They are completely different, but they have something in common, the ability to make a strong impression on their audience. And each of them, with the help of this, achieves the main thing, power, authority, and ability to influence others. How to develop charisma. Become internally free. Charisma is unthinkable without significant internal freedom of the individual. This means the ability to see the world in its own way as well as freedom from a number of restrictions that the majority follows. It is the freedom to come up with your own goals. Many people consciously refuse freedom, voluntarily handing it over to the leader because they don't know what to do with it. They are not ready to take responsibility for themselves and their decisions. To be charismatic means to be freer than others, to be able to navigate in the world of opportunities and be able to make decisions. Have a high motivation. Whatever the goal of the novice leader, to earn money, to achieve comfort and safety, to provide for his family, to realize his potential, to achieve high social status, he inevitably comes to the understanding that his actions have high social significance. Whatever he does is very important for hundreds and thousands of people. A charismatic leader must form his mission and lofty goal. His task is to realize something large-scale in order to give others new opportunities. The charismatic always gives the world more than it takes from him. Have a lot of ideas. A charismatic person always wants a lot. He needs change and moving forward. Passivity is disgusting to him. He does not like vacation because he begins to toil and get bored. He has a lot of enthusiasm. He is very proactive and ready to deal with circumstances and inconveniences to make the world a better place. 
Most people do not come up with new ideas, not because they lack intelligence or experience, but because of an internal ban on challenging the current state of things. The leader, thanks to inner freedom, is able to step over such barriers. Be independent. A leader always emphasizes his independence and autonomy. Whether consciously or not, he seeks to take the reins of government in any group, wherever he finds himself, at work, in the family, in the basketball team. A charismatic does not need external justifications for his actions. He needs only his own internal motives. A person who claims to have a great mission must sincerely believe that he has a special mission. He is convinced that he is doing a good deed and doing it right. Have your own principles and be able to be guided by expediency. In decision-making, leaders are guided not by moral standards but by expediency. It is not practical to find an employee for his own pleasure. Not to find an employee when an offense requires punishment, when without this discipline of the whole team will be violated, also impractical. If the leader is guided by expediency, then he gets rid of unnecessary feelings and torment of conscience. In addition to expediency, a charismatic can determine for himself important principles. For example, repay a debt at any cost. The principles also relieve suffering and the need to make a difficult decision each time. A charismatic is a person with principles and his own rules. To become charismatic, you need to not only set goals, but also be able to fulfill them. Derive your own principles and be able to follow them. A leader who has power over others and knows how to control them has power above all over himself. However, one should not consider charisma as a type of magical power that forces one to obey the person who possesses it. Charisma is a special quality that can be decomposed into several components. I would like to immediately note that charisma is not a universal phenomenon. In other words, a person can be surprisingly charismatic in one audience and completely non-charismatic in another. For example, take the head of a company within which he is for all the adamant authority. However, for his family, he is an ordinary person with his weaknesses. But even within the company, even the most charismatic boss will not be such for every subordinate. Here the question is the intelligence of the employees themselves. If they are smart enough to appreciate the fullness of the boss's charisma, then they will undoubtedly fall under its influence. If their level clearly does not reach the level of a leader, then they will not see anything unusual in it anyway. So what are the components of charisma? There are no and cannot be any standard sets in this matter. Each charismatic leader is charismatic in his own way. However, there are some features and skills that are inherent in almost all charismatics. Strong communication skills. Perhaps one of the main components of charisma. The influence of a leader on people is carried out through verbal communication. If the leader is tongue-tied, then how can he convey his ideas, albeit brilliant ones? From personal experience, I can say that I noticed such a property for charismatics as soon as they appear in some audience where people were quietly and peacefully bored before, they immediately fill with themselves the entire space. This is an amazing quality. How does a charismatic do this? Yes, he himself does not know this. But for the audience, he always has the right word. A couple of words he exchanges with one, then with another, and then completely manages to draw all those sitting in some sort of general conversation. Everyone notes his remarkable intelligence and amazing sense of humor. Deep knowledge in any field. This is to the question of why a person is charismatic for one society 
and completely not charismatic for another. It is all about knowledge. Charismatics have no equal in the field of activity in which he works. For example, the head of a company should be much better versed in management than his subordinates. Of course, it's impossible to know everything, and some narrow aspects can always be left to the appropriate specialist. But in matters of strategy, questions of how and according to what plan the company will develop further, a charismatic leader must be unsurpassed. The ability to save the puzzle. A charismatic leader can create a feeling of some understatement. For others, he is a mystery man. The charismatic knows how to keep the audience in suspense and to maintain intrigue until a certain point. A lot of myths always revolve around him, which he either does not comment on, stirring up interest in himself, or artificially supports, if it suits him. With all this, the charismatic is an open personality. He does not seek to build a brick wall between himself and his subordinates. On the contrary, it is externally available to employees. Charismatics know the belief of each person in their uniqueness, and he successfully uses it. A charismatic leader needs to remember the names of his subordinates, as well as the names of some of their close relatives. In case of an accidental meeting, such a leader can contact you by name and will certainly ask you how your family is doing. Any employee will be flattered by such attention from the head, and his loyalty to the company and personally to the boss will increase. Charismatic chefs treat him with respect and some awe at the same time, and this fear is based precisely on the mysterious character of the chef. After all, when there is something incomprehensible and unknown in a person, then it scares. At the same time, employees know that the chef will never give them a scam from scratch or because the mood is like that. Love for people. The generosity and breadth of the soul, all this is about charisma. He really loves people. A teacher and a preacher live in it at the same time. He is not just a walking-legged encyclopedia. He is also a bearer of his spiritual and moral values. And like any teacher, he feels his need for bestowal, which consists not only in the transfer of knowledge, but also in the acceptance by people of his values. The charismatic, possessing a broad and vivid picture of the world, always hopes that he will be able to enrich the inner world of other people and he always enjoys watching the professional and spiritual growth of his subordinates. In any team, a charismatic leader is always an ideological inspirer. Quite often, they have problems with delegation of authority. The thing is that in such companies, the manager takes on too many functions, becoming an absolute indispensable link. In the case of illness or vacation of his boss from the organization as if life is leaving, there is no one else to inspire, and inspire everything seems to work but not in the same way as with it. The charismatic leader is an ideological and emotional person. Such a leader will be most effective if the organization needs to be urgently taken out of the crisis or if it is necessary to quickly develop new markets or areas of activity. Anti-crisis management and the withdrawal of startups are the best way to contribute to the full disclosure and mobilization of the potential of the charismatic. Problems begin when the situation in the company is stable and no new revolutionary breakthroughs are planned. Monotony kills charisma. Charismatic leadership involves the presence of any obstacles and their heroic overcoming. But if they are not there, then such a leader will begin to create them himself, and this can lead to the most negative consequences. Therefore, a company that has all business processes described as notes and has a stable financial situation usually does not need a charismatic leader. 
The paradox is that charismatics themselves rarely think about whether they possess this charisma or not. Moreover, when you ask them about it in the forehead, they may be embarrassed and say that they most likely do not possess it. Charismatics have no time to think about charisma. He always has so many ideas and ideas in his head. These strong and strong-willed personalities are not ready to waste a single minute. They constantly decide something, think about something, or help someone. Their personal self-esteem is a projection of the degree of their social success. It would seem that the charismatic depends on the opinions of other people, which does not quite fit with the definition of a strong personality. However, there is no contradiction here, since the charisma of a leader can manifest itself only in society. Consequently, it is society that determines the degree of effectiveness of a leader, recognizing or denying him the presence of charisma. Chapter 8 Social Conditioning During a group discussion when I was in school, I heard an argument where someone vehemently declared that we are a product of our society. I wanted to dispute that right there because I was privileged to know many successful individuals who defied their society and distinguished themselves by accomplishing very impressive feats. As I grew older and experienced more of life, it dawned on me that these individuals were the exceptions. It is an undeniable fact that the society we live in plays a tremendous role that shapes us in more ways than we can imagine. The ugly truth is that the way we think, live, and function can be traced to the influences of our society, and these are some of the things that dark psychology exploits. Social conditioning refers to the impact a society has on your life as a whole. While social conditioning looks more at your social status in terms of income, living conditions, and so on, its reach can go deeper than that. Your society can and does influence your beliefs and religion. You may not be a direct practitioner of those beliefs, but you are indirectly affected by it. In certain cultures, certain days are considered sacred. That means conducting business on those days might be considered an offense. There is a general misconception that being a part of society that is more advanced makes you impervious to the influences of culture. I totally get that kind of reasoning. How can a society that gave birth to the likes of Albert Einstein and Neil Armstrong be impacted by something as ridiculous as culture, right? Well, you are wrong on that count. If anything, you are even more vulnerable, and I will tell you about it in a bit. The biggest advancement of our society has made today is in the area of technology. We live in a world where things are done in a flash. Money transactions are completed at the push of a button. A businessman can conclude a deal in China motivate his team in South America, talk his partner through a crisis at home, and deliver an impressive marketing pitch in Dubai all before the morning is done just by pressing a few buttons. This is the world we live in today. If you are coming up with a business plan in this era, your products and services have to match the same speed that we are all used to, or else you are setting yourself up to fail. And this is very good because I am fairly certain that no one misses the good old days when it took one whole month to get a mail from across the country or three puffs of black smoke shooting in the sky to tell you that your beloved loves you back. No, we appreciate the pace by which things are done these days. Unfortunately, the speed that characterizes our daily lives makes us vulnerable to get-rich-quick schemes. We hear all these amazing stories of people who became millionaires overnight. And on some subconscious level, we desire the same thing. Some people have exploited those desires to their advantage with what we now know as Ponzi schemes. 
After the infamous Charles Ponzi, a Ponzi scheme is a diabolical way of carrying out daytime robbery with full consent from the victim. The scam artists come up with a fictitious enterprise that promises huge returns on investment. After the victim makes an initial commitment, he is rewarded with returns, which draw him in further into the trap the perpetrators have laid out, causing him to put in more funds. To even maximize his profits, the victim is manipulated into bringing in more friends to make investments. The more friends he brings, the higher his returns. This builds a pyramid of investors all pouring their funds into this enterprise that does not exist. In reality, what the scammers are doing is simply robbing Peter to pay Paul. Then they pay themselves as well. This continues until one day the company just vanishes into thin air, leaving lots of victims stranded and without their initial investment or returns on it. The only logical explanation we can give for a situation like this, where a company with barely any registered documentation of its existence comes in and swindles hard-working people who are usually smart in their dealings, is social conditioning. It happened in the 1800s, in the 1900s, and is still occurring to this very day. And despite the knowledge of its existence, people are still falling for Ponzi schemes. It is like we are just programmed to do it. Plus, it is not just a restricted to a certain class of people. Both rich and poor fall for it. And that tells us that the perpetrator preys on something that these two classes of people have in common. It's a desire to make more money and to make that money fast. But it doesn't just end there. To successfully commit this crime, they rely on our sense of community. They are more likely to patronize the services or products of a company if you were given a direct referral by someone you trust at the recommendations of a random stranger. If your sister shows up saying she made XYZ amount of money in an investment and she shows you proof of it, instinctively your trust causes you to base your decision almost entirely on the reference. And when you get your own payout, you automatically become an ambassador for the brand. This makes you spread your own news to other people in your network, and the chain continues. This is a very human behavior, and a lot of manipulators would capitalize on this. As soon as they get what they need, they disappear, or get consumed by their greed and get caught. You might argue that this scenario is not likely to happen to you, because you are just too smart for this. So let me bring it closer to home using technology that we go to bed with and wake up to every day. Social media is the craze of our time. People have become overnight sensations thanks to social media platforms like YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, among others. This has caused some of us to nurse similar dreams until that happens. We are willing to settle for the likes and comments we get. The problem is that our natural desire to connect with people can become somewhat obsessive if the focus is on our virtual relationships on social media. This grows into a disturbing thought process where one's sense of accomplishment is equated with the number of likes, follows, and comments one can get from a post. Individuals who start thinking in this manner stop paying attention to their actual real-life relationships. Instead, they lead fake and pretentious lives just so they can get approval that in a sad way validates their daily lives. In this quest for relevance, they starve themselves emotionally and subject themselves to the sometimes cruel and disapproving opinions of others. This sort of behavior has been linked to the increase of suicidal behavior in people who use social media. It is quite ironic that social media, which was designed to help us connect with other people and build our network, has broken many people instead due to its dark influences. Chapter 9. 
undetected mind control. The term mind control has many definitions and interpretations, but the crucial thing to note is that it doesn't involve any sort of magic or supernatural ability. It just requires a rudimentary understanding of human emotions and behavior. Mind control can involve brainwashing a person, re-educating them, reforming their thoughts, using coercive techniques to persuade them of certain things, or brain sweeping. There are many forms of mind control, and we could fill an entire book discussing all those forms, but for our purposes, we will look at the concept in general terms. Mind control means a person is trying to get others to feel, think, or behave in a certain way, or to react and make decisions following a certain pattern. It could vary from a girl trying to get a boyfriend to develop certain habits, to a cult leader trying to convince his followers that he is God. Mind control is based on one thing, information. We have the thoughts and beliefs that we do because we learned them. When we are subjected to new information on a deliberate and consistent basis, it's possible to alter our beliefs, thoughts, or even memories. The brain is hardwired to survive, and towards that end, it's very good at learning information that is crucial for our survival. When you receive certain information consistently, your brain will start to believe it, even if you know it's not true. For example, even if you are the most rational person out there, if you go online and watch 100 videos about a certain conspiracy theory, you will start to believe it to some extent. That explains why people who seem smart can end up getting indoctrinated into cults or even terrorist groups. Mind control also works more effectively when one is dependent on the person who is trying to control his or her mind. Even in relationships that are involuntary, the victim can start buying the perpetrator's worldview if they have been dependent on the perpetrator for a long time. That explains phenomena such as Stockholm Syndrome, where people who are kidnapped or held hostage start being affectionate toward their captors and empathizing with their causes. The worst thing you can do is assume that you are too smart for mind control to work on you. Under the right circumstances, anyone can be persuaded to abandon their worldview and adopt someone else's. Mind games are covert tricks that are deliberately crafted in order to manipulate someone. Think of them as handcrafted psychological manipulation techniques. While other techniques are applied broadly, mind games are created to target very specific people. They work best when the victim trusts the perpetrator, and the perpetrator understands the victim's personality and behavior. Most of the psychological manipulation techniques we have discussed thus far can be used when crafting mind games. A person who understands you will tell you certain things or behave in certain ways around you because they are deliberately trying to get you to react in a certain way. It's almost always involving feigning certain emotions. People who play mind games use innocent-sounding communication to elicit calculated reactions from you. Psychologists refer to such mind games as conscious one-upmanship, and they have observed that many occur in all areas of life. Mind games occur in office politics, personal relationships, and even international diplomacy. At work, someone could try to make you feel like you are not up to the task so they can steal an opportunity from you. In a marriage, your partner could make certain seemingly innocent slights against you so that you feel like you have something to prove, and you take a certain course of action as a result. In dating, there are pickup artists who use different kinds of tricks to get you to lower your guard to let them in. Mind control is not the whole of the vague information you hear in gossip accompanied by conspiracy theories. It is the product of secret experiments with systematic studies dating back to World War II, perhaps older. Of course, 
The 20th century totalitarian regimes who wanted to robotize their subjects also played a major role in this. Therefore, the first thing to note is that developing technology facilitates the mind control efforts of the oppressors every year, like telegram scourge that happens today. But mind control, it is something that can be done without technology with the support of psychology and orator. The most striking example of this in history, this is the work carried out by Goebbels, the minister of propaganda of the Nazis. Goebbels succeeded in engraving his name in gold letters in this lane, which was the disgrace of humanity. Mind control. It is the name given to all the unethical activities of some power centers to manage people in line with their goals, to shape their ideas and control their lifestyles. While technology opportunities can be utilized in mind control, human psychology, propaganda knowledge, and social engineering are essential. Also, mind control is applied in a highly systematic, insidious way by people who have done as much research as required by a master or doctor. In other words, it is essential that people don't realize the engineering applied to them so to be hypnotized. Therefore, it is challenging to recognize and resist. Effects of Mind Control on Humans The effects of using mind control on human beings are seen in different ways. Some of them are as follows. Memory loss and behavior disorders. Change in direction, intensity, and content of sound heard. Speech deterioration by checking eyelids. Severe heart palpitations. Forcing accidents on the shoulders and arms during laborious work. Jogging of the elbows and preventing work while doing something. Pain and unnecessary movement of the legs, right and left swing, and excessive stiffness. Itching and blushing in hard-to-reach areas. Contractions of large muscles in the back. Checking hand gestures. Reading thoughts or transmitting thoughts from outside. Seeing moving imaginary images. Keeping eyelids constantly open. Continuous tinnitus jaw and teeth shivering for no reason. Chapter 10. Reading the Cues, Verbal and Nonverbal Communication Skills to Set Up Your Sight Game. Being able to read other people and communicate in return is a crucial skill in dark psychology. The language we use and the nonverbal signals we send and receive are an indicator of intelligence, emotional expression, and can be a portal through which to see someone's true self. People can try to mask themselves with their words, but often their body language will give them away. Let's take a crash course on verbal and nonverbal cues and skills that can help you on your dark psychological journey. What's in a word? The language we use can be a telling sign of who we really are. If you're in a business setting, you want to use language that is appropriate, professional, and clear. If we are in a social setting, we may use language that contains more slang or profanity. The point is, we talk to the situation. But what if you knew what your tone of voice is actually more important than your words? How we use our words is actually more important than what words we use. Think about the tone of your voice you use to talk to a dog. The, who's a good boy, voice. No matter what you say to the dog, if you use that tone, they will wag their tail. Obviously, a dog cannot interpret your words the same way a fellow human can, but you get the idea about tone. Framing our words in a positive way, even to communicate a negative thought, is a great way to connect to people. All psychology, dark or otherwise, relies on a basis and need to be able to form bonds that allow you access to another person's mind. By being the type of person who can speak both eloquently and situationally, 
you will be the type of person that others are drawn to. You can also tell a great deal about a person's mind by how they speak when they are under stress. If they become flustered or speak quickly and nervously, it could be an indication that they do not handle stress well. If they speak in a voice that becomes stronger and clearer as they continue, it's a sign that their brain processes stress and adapts quickly to problems as they arise. These people are probably mentally tough and good problem solvers. People are naturally attracted to those who can speak powerfully because they want to be near good communicators, either because they also want to communicate or because they want to hide behind someone who can be a voice for them. Either way, you brought them to you and now you have a modicum of power over them. You can then use your dark psychological techniques to have them help you achieve your goals. Verbal communication skills are important and don't forget the power of the written word. People who can express themselves on paper or via email or text message have power over those that cannot because the written word is a record of our intelligence and values. We live in an era which seems to be seeing the decline of written language due to texting abbreviations and internet acronyms. Pay attention to how a person speaks and writes. Someone could be very intelligent and speak very intelligently, but if they write with a lot of spelling errors or texting acronyms, that could be an indicator of carelessness. Someone who takes the time to write proper sentences, even in a text message, is someone who pays great attention to detail. How we use language and the time we take to use it can tell us a lot about each other's personalities. It goes without saying. Nonverbal communication says so much without saying a word. If you truly want some insight into a person's psyche, pay attention to everything they don't say. From the way a person sits and stands to their facial expressions, be able to read nonverbal cues will make you a better and more effective communicator because you'll be able to tap into someone's emotions based on how they are carrying themselves. Let's start at the top and work our way down, as it were. Facial expressions are probably the largest indicator of emotion for humans. They say that the eyes are the window to the soul, and they're probably not too far off. People's eyes can actually have involuntary reactions to certain stimuli, like lighting up when someone they love enters a room, or narrowing when we feel suspicious. There probably aren't too many people who don't know what an eye roll means. Our eyes can be clouded with sadness or fatigue, and make eye contact implies sincerity or trustworthiness. Our mouths are indicators of feelings as well. When we smile a sincere smile, our lips open wide to reveal our teeth and gums. Fake smiles draw back the corners of our lips but do not usually reveal our teeth or gums. Frowning is the same way, but in reverse. A sincere frown usually just pulls down the corner of our mouths, but a false or put-upon frown tends to be exaggerated. A grimace can indicate pain or frustration, and the latter is often accompanied by an eye roll. Even our eyebrows can give away our emotions. A wiggle is playful, while a furrowed brow can indicate concentration or puzzlement. Raising one brow can signal skepticism, and raising both indicates surprise. Not too shabby for some vestigial patches of hair. Once you've studied someone's facial expressions to find a clue into their feelings and emotional state, you can begin to examine the rest of their body language. People who are closed off emotionally usually display this in their posture by keeping their arms and or legs firmly crossed. They don't want to feel either physically or emotionally vulnerable. People who slouch or slump often have self-esteem issues. They want to subconsciously make themselves smaller 
so no one notices them. Proud people carry themselves upright and forthright, often puffing out their chests in their own self-importance. They want to be seen. Have you ever seen a bantam rooster? They are very small in stature, but full of arrogance. They strut about the barnyard as if they are the biggest animal on the farm. People with an inflated sense of self-worth are bantam roosters of the human world. Someone's stance when they speak to you one-on-one -on -one is also a big indicator of how they feel about themselves and you. If they stand close to you, they are either comfortable with you or may have a cognitive disconnect about personal space. That's also useful information, as it could signal that they have cognitive dissonance in other areas of their lives. Does the person you're speaking to touch your arm or hand? They are trying to connect with you. If someone stands a distance away, they may not feel comfortable being close to you or may be looking for a confrontation. You can use the space to your advantage because it gives you time to plan an emotional and physical escape route or plan of attack if necessary. Crossed arms or standing with hands on hips is a fairly obvious sign of anger, and refusing to stand directly facing you is a sign of internal conflict. The person is consciously or subconsciously trying to decide if they should continue to confront you or turn away and leave the conversation. When people are hurt or sad, they will often speak with their back to you because they do not want you to be privy to their deepest emotions, or they cannot face you because you were the cause of their sadness or emotional injury. You can take advantage of this state by giving them positive attention, offering a sincere or deceptively sincere apology, and being the hero. This will give you power over the person. The next time they are feeling down, they may come to you for emotional support. You've now got the ability to control their emotions when they are feeling vulnerable. Applying Body Language to Dark Psychology Mirroring is a bonding technique which can be used to get someone to think and feel the same things you are thinking and feeling. When you are speaking to someone, observe their posture and stance. Mimic it. When they change positions, you change positions. Do this a few times, being subtle about it, of course. Once you know they haven't caught on to what you are doing, Change your own stance or position. They should do the same. Continue the process until the other person consistently changes their position to mirror yours. You've now completed a subconscious bond, and they should be open to your powers of persuasion or manipulation. You can also use body language in deception. Think about the term poker face. People who play cards will try to maintain as neutral an expression as possible because they do not want to signal to the other players whether or not they have a good hand. This small example of body language and deception can be used on a larger scale. People who work in the service industry often have to force a smile and helpful attitude, even when customers are getting on their every last nerve. If you can learn to control your own facial expressions and body language, you can successfully convince anyone that you are feeling things that you aren't really feeling. Once you become proficient in creating false emotional projections, you can become more proficient in practicing dark psychology because you will have the tremendous tool of manipulating body language at your disposal. Go with your gut. There is something to be said about gut instinct. It's a real phenomenon and can be useful in determining how someone is truly thinking and feeling. Some people just give off an air of distrust or a sense of being something that they are not. Use your intuition to read people. You might find that you are right more often than not. Sometimes we just get a bad feeling about someone. It's probably not a fluke. That's the biggest takeaway when it comes to body language. Be intuitive. Be observant. 
and be willing to be deceptive if necessary. Chapter 11, Manipulation Psychology. This chapter will carefully deal with the definition of manipulation psychology. This is the branch of psychology that deals with the aspects of manipulation and hard work. Some of the signs of manipulation are as follows. The use of home court. This is the manipulation technique in which the individual uses his or her home as an advantage for his own benefits. The psychological demeanor was used to define the crux of the people who are under the liability of the people. For the substantiation of this case, it is important to understand that the people who are in a psychological condition to manipulate others are very smart. The first rule is that the public must come into consideration of the psychological master, and then the master will navigate his thoughts. First and foremost, the master uses the court to manipulate the personalities, and then the public first advocate the use of manipulation to be just and obscure. Establishing the stance first, and then looking for weaknesses. In the manipulation of psychology, it is important to understand that the establishment of the stance is first. The stance needs to be manifested first, and then it is established so that the people who are listening to the track come under the way of the manipulator. Once the stance of the manipulator is established, then the maneuvering is very easy. The people have to understand the use of the stance easily, and then they have to use the words of the manipulator as a source of manipulation. The people can easily be thrown into abyss when the manipulator asks a lot of questions. The idea is that the public first navigates the stance, and then the manipulator can use the stance to find its justification. If the manipulator wants to find the essence of the stance, and he finds some distortion of the stance, then he can avoid the crux of the stance very badly. Manipulation of Facts If you want to assert the significance of the psychology of manipulation, then the facts stated can be used to deceive. The facts can be of any statement, and that can be used to defy the logic of people. For instance, if the manipulator is using the fact sound of one thing, and then that thing can be used to defy as well. Persons that can assess the logic of the personalities can manipulate by navigating them through their own lies. This is the act of manipulation if the people are using the effects of defiance in an effective manner. Overwhelming with facts and statistics. First and foremost, the fact and statistics can be used to defy the personalities of the public. The facts are to be constructed in an effective manner so that the manipulator can be used to defy the odds of manipulation. So, for a strong manipulation, you have to overwhelm the facts and statistics with the persons. The persons can be used to come under the cloud of statistics if the public are not able to use strong motive psychological messages. Therefore, it is important that psychology can be used to interpret the essence of the public in a logical manner. Overwhelming with procedures and red tape. In order to maintain the crux of other personalities, the manipulator uses procedures and red tapes to give more defined reasons to the public. The manipulator will use the procedural versions in which the public has to be manipulated in a stringent manner. The manipulator can be harnessed in a strong way so that the public can give concrete methods to it. For this reason, to be constructed, the manipulator uses some procedures and advantages through which the normal public comes into oppression. This oppression is used to define the lands of the public, and the public comes under the manipulation of the manipulator. So, in order to manipulate the people, the psychologist can use the crux of procedures and some secretive tapes that can be used in a strong manner. 
raising the voice, and displaying negative emotions. The manipulator, in order to make the voice of the public effective, has to raise the voice of himself. The manipulator uses some strong means and modes through which he is able to forecast a shadow of darkness. This darkness is used to construct the methods of manipulation among the stakeholders, and the people can come under effective modes of destruction. Also, the negative emotions give the value of harsh realities among the public, and they get severely neglected by the personalities. Therefore, it is important to understand that the public are not able to get manipulated if they see the raised level of voice, and hence there is a display of festering emotions among the people. Negative Surprises The negative surprises are another mode of manipulation by the manipulator. To manipulate can be used harsh negative surprises through which the people are not able to understand their nature. These negative surprises also affect the effects of mentality of the public, and with the passage of time, the people do not get easily comfortable in this essence. The negative surprises show a strong moment of disinterest among the public, and there is a culture of disassociation among the public through the negative surprises. The negative surprises give a sense of bad omens for the public through which the people are not able to give standard modes of deviation for the public. Giving you a little or no time to decide. The time that has been given to you is either less time or there is no time. The manipulator wants to get his thing done because only then is he effective in his mode. The manipulator would cast his own means to come in front of the public. The time that has been slotted for the manipulator has a strong version of connectedness with the people, and thus there needs to be a strong sense of affection for the people. Therefore, the time of decision that has been given to you is a tool of the manipulator so that the public is able to give more directions to the public. So, the time has to be a motive interest for the public to understand in an effective manner. Use of Negative Humor The negative humor is a manipulating tool to disassociate you from your being. The manipulator would cast a negative humor on you and will do his best in making you feel bad about the situation. This manipulation is further designed by the manipulator to disempower you with its continuous bolstering. The use of negative humor could be very harsh and brutal for you. Therefore, the use of negative humor could be used to induce isolationism and fanaticism to the public and could be very pernicious for you as well. If the use of negative humor could be bad for you, then manipulation could be a stringent maneuver to showcase ineffectiveness among you. Consistent judgment. The consistent judgment could be a harsh tactic to induce fright among you. The manipulator could use the essence of judgment to make you feel discomfortable. How it can be done? This is as follows. Suppose you are sitting in a room and the manipulator is sitting in front of you and you are able to hear the statements of the manipulator and with the passage of time, the public is not able to define the essence of the judgments properly. The public is quite effective in harboring the essence of the manipulator and if the manipulator is successful in dissing you with the judgments, then finally you are under his claw. The consistent judgment will make you feel very demotivated and with the passage of time, you will feel delusional. Silent Treatments When the manipulator wants to harbor his mechanism, then he uses the edifice of silence. This silence is very haunting. It is very managerial, and with the passage of time, it induces a bad version of manipulation among you. You get affected by the silence of the manipulator, and in time, this becomes very pestering among you. The silent treatment is also very haunting at an individualistic level, because at times, the public are not able to see the result of it in a discomforting manner. Therefore, the silent treatments can be used to haunt the premises of the individual in a bad manner.
pretend ignorance. The manipulators can be used to see the edifice of ignorance in them. The people can be used to see the harmful effects of ignorance, and the public can come into the direct affiliation of the manipulator. The manipulator could be seen pretending like he is ignoring the answers of the public, but he is actually bolstering the acts of manipulation for the public. Therefore, it is important to understand that the public must cater to this regard seriously. If anyone is seen being ignorant, then he or she is using manipulation. Thus, the idea is simple over here. If a person is able to see the harmful effects of ignorance in it, then he can see what can actually lead in it to it. Therefore, it is necessary to understand that pretension of ignorance is actually a mode to attain the prospect of ignorance. Guilt-baiting. There is a strong perception that the manipulators can easily use the edifice of guilt-baiting in them. This is the idea that makes the manipulator play the victim card. The manipulator aims himself to be the victim caretaker, and with the passage of time, he starts to play the victim card with full zeal. The idea is that the more victimhood the person has to play, the more he gets into wrong and unnecessary means and progression. Also, with the victim card, the public has to see what are the harms and ills of the people. Therefore, it is important to understand that the manipulator can be used in some essence of the presence of the public to disapprove any of its matter. Victimhood there are some of the imaginal victimhood believes in the minds of the manipulator that makes him believe that he is the actual victim. He gets so strangled by the cost of doing bad things that he focuses himself to be totally bad and pugnacious. All these beliefs make the manipulator believe that he has been severe victim of the public, and with the passage of time, the victim has to be addressed with empathy and sympathy. The sympathy starts with this belief that the public are able to have a great amount of interest for the public and the people. Therefore, the culture of victimhood is a mode of making the person feel empowered by self-asserting himself to be a victim. So, these are some of the manipulation techniques used in psychology to deceive the personalities in the future. Chapter 12. Manipulator's Tools this chapter will precisely deal with the tools and tactics that are used by a manipulator to imbue the methods of manipulation. Those can be the clever words of language, use of cultural norms, and the societal inclination among the public. It can be many other things as well. 10 Tools and Techniques Used by the Manipulator Following are some of the techniques. 1. Gaslighting this is the technique that is used to see if the person's words sound like his actions or not. The gaslighting is a method that can be used to question the belief of the personality, and with the passage of time, the person has to understand the use of this tool to use the manipulation effectively. There is a set of questions among the public, used by the manipulator, to dodge the essence of the questions, and with the passage of time, the entire scenario of the public changes with time all because of the gas questions asked by the manipulator. 2. Generalizations The generalizations of a manipulator are a strong sense of demotivation for the public to withstand. The manipulator easily generalizes all the terms and tactics that are employed on a social, economic, and political factor, and with the passage of time, the generalizations come with time. The generalizations are important enough for a manipulator for the student to understand the essence of all compatible reasons for the public, and with the passage of time, the manipulator is able to see the distance of the public go far away.
Therefore, the distance of the public from the real cause actually defines the status of the manipulator and with the manipulator can control a lot of sense through it. Therefore, the use of a generalizing matter creates more and more aspect for the students and civilians. Thus, the use of generalization gives impetus to the manipulator, and with the passage of time, it can be more asserted in the coming. So, generalization can lead to a lot of trouble and menace for the student. 3. Moving the goalpost. The manipulators have every right to deny your goal and ambition. They call it moving the goalpost and this is how the public is able to induce bad and obscene mechanism to it. The goalpost is the ambition of every man to cater to the fundamentally obsessed question of the incident, and with the passage of time, the manipulator tends to detract you from the quest at the earliest. The track is therefore a sense of motivation for you, and you do not get enough style of aspiration for the students and civilians. The idea is quite simple, that the public are able to create more satisfaction for the public and with the passage of time the manipulators induce havoc as well. 4. Changing the subject. The manipulator would do his best in changing the subject. This aspect makes avoid accountability of his previous actions and with the passage of time he learns the act of treachery and deception. Any time or any place where he is not able to see the masterpiece of the subject he tends to foil with the public and therefore he is not even governing to the matter of the public so that he could not even to the matter of appreciation. Thus, changing the subject of any conversation is also a tool of manipulation that is required by all means necessary. 5. Name-calling. Name-calling is an art and tactic that can be used to induce marginalization in the incident, and with the passage of time, it could lead to dilemmas and destruction. The name-calling starts with a mode of aspiration for the pupils, but ends in utter destruction for the public. This concept can easily be seen in many areas and portions of the world, and such a practice can induce horror and terror in the region. This practice of name-calling can be used in the factors that enable one with destruction and devastation. 6. Smear Campaigns This campaign is used to address the horrendous use of psychology for the public. This is a play-in which you are the victim and they are the martyr. According to them, you have displayed a sense of bad relationship to them and for that mere reason they have labeled you as a dead person. You no longer have a sense of reputation in the system, and every time you encounter them, they tend to call you bad and the gone one. This aspect has many difficulties for you, and end up being a psychopath. This aspect has emotional issues for you, psychological issues for you, ovulational, and many more. Therefore, smear campaigns are personally made to make you feel bad and obscene, and with the passage of time, you feel very hectic. 7. Devaluation. This devaluation is not the currency devaluation, but it is the human devaluation of yourself. You tend to be very bad and obsolete in your character that you embarrass everyone's exes. You will, as it your pertinent duty, to make the lives and ages of others feel embarrassing. And with the passage of time, you control over your anger just to inflict punishment among the others. For instance, there was a time when people were able to cooperate with one another and could not try to defame others. However, with the burgeoning social media, people tend to decide the relationship of others by making them feel very degenerate. This is the crucial aspect of psychology, which could be very tumultuous for you, and with the passage of time, he felt very bad and worse. Therefore, devaluation is meant to be an outlet of dark psychology, 
and it can be very harmful for anyone who does it. 8. Aggressive jokes. Aggressive jokes are the modes to make others look small and in shambles. These jokes could be anything like the jokes on individuality, the jokes on society, and the jokes on caste. These jokes impose derogatory remarks on the individuals, and with the passage of time, the individuals feel very bad about them. The idea is simple, that the psychology believes that manipulators could be worst nightmares for innocent personalities. People can use the edifice of others to personally sabotage the concept of friendliness and equality among the persons, and with the passage of time, the people tend to showcase a system of defamation among others. Thus, aggressive jokes can be bad and hazardous for others. 9. Triangulation. This is the concept in which the individuals tend to use the supposed threat of others to manipulate the innocents. Suppose there are three individuals in a room. Two of them are having an argument about anything, and the person next to them is of a high caste. The manipulator would use the edifice of supposed threat of the third person to deter that of a second person, and with the passage of time, the concept of triangulation would be bolstered. Hence, the use of force and the manipulation is done in order to make the third parties very bad and degenerate. Use of tools. In this paragraph, the tools can be used for manipulation will be discussed. They are sensory devices, visual sensor, automatic assembly, industrial manipulator, and photoelectric detector. These tools cast a shadow of degeneration among the personalities, and with the passage of time, the people are able to have list of traumata embedded in them. Therefore, with the passage of time, the tools can be used for a stringent version of collaboration. Thus, these are some of the ways and tools of manipulation that can harbor bad deeds in the person. Chapter 13. Undetected Mind Control Undetected mind control tactics are the smoke and mirrors of manipulative people and organizations. They are tiny little tricks to get you to buy this, eat that, subscribe to the other thing, and start thinking of something that you have never thought of before. It is so subtle and discreet that we can be completely unaware of it while it occurs, even though we are fluttered with these tactics as soon as we look at our smartphones or turn on our televisions. Undetected mind control is one of the most useful tools of governments, media, and companies. Think about a time you had low self-esteem. You left your house feeling very good that day, at least until you saw an underwear advertisement with an impossibly slim yet curvaceous woman with a guy whose abs are better than you could ever have time to develop. The couple in that ad look so happy and sexy. They are cool, and they are wearing the brand of underwear in the advertisement. You begin to feel ever so slightly insecure the rest of the day after comparing yourself to the two beautiful models. Later that night, you see an ad on Facebook or on TV for the same brand. You remember how cool the ad was and how you yourself want the happy, sexy life presented in the advertisement. You buy a few pairs of underwear online from this brand by the end of the night. Undetected mind control can be pretty much anything that gets you to think and do what someone else wants, and it is one of the most dangerous methods in dark psychology. That is because if someone does not know they are under the influence of mind control, they have no power to break themselves free of it and think for themselves about what is actually happening to them. It can be carried out by one manipulative individual on another, or it can be a large-scale project by a big corporation or government. 
individuals who engage in undetected mind control to be manipulative and cowardly. They want what they want, but without having to ask or having to cooperate with the person they are trying to control. When undetected mind control occurs in an interpersonal relationship, the manipulator usually chooses a victim who needs something. Something in need is almost always more open to undetected mind control tactics because having those needs unmet make them more reward-focused. The correlation to this is that being more reward-focused makes the victim less aware of consequences. They will be more compliant towards the manipulator because they are focusing on the possibility of being relieved of their unsatisfied needs. Individuals trying to get away with undetected mind control will often use choice restriction to get what they want. Remember, choice restriction is a common CEM tactic. See where this fits in? Undetected mind control in interpersonal relationships is a more subtle form of a lot of CEM tactics. As previously discussed, choice restriction is when a question is phrased so the manipulator will almost guarantee to get what they want out of their victim. Imagine buying furniture with a spouse, and they say, We are getting this couch or that couch. Choose right now. Here, the spouse makes sure you will choose one of the couches that they would prefer. They avoid asking an open-ended question on purpose in order to limit the scope of your thinking and possibilities. When the media engages in undetected mind control, they do not need to use interpersonal tools of manipulation. It can reach you through your smartphone, laptop, television, billboards, magazines, newspapers, and radio. The media engages in undetected mind control by enticing you to spend your money on all sorts of products and services. The ad usually isn't really about the product, though. Otherwise, it would be a short informational clip about all the technical specs of what exactly you are about to buy. Remember the underwear ad? That advertisement was not really selling you underwear. That ad was selling you the dream of beauty and affection. The same goes for cosmetic advertisements telling you that the specific product being advertised will make you happy, glamorous, and beautiful. If advertisements did not work, most people would save a lot of money and have higher self-esteem, as they would not see any need to spend money on expensive diet pills or skin creams sold with dubious claims. Why we don't realize it's happening. Most people's initial reaction to this news is to argue, Hey, wait, I know when someone is trying to trick me, I am no fool. You are probably not a fool, but undetected mind control is almost impossible to escape. Let's zoom in on choice restriction. In choice restriction, all the thinking is done for you. The choices are made available, and all we have to do is choose one or the other. The same goes for what happens when you watch an advertisement for a new product. The person on television tells you a little bit about the product, why you need it, and how it can make you hotter, cooler, richer, or taller. Most of the ad is spent proving the latter two points. Sitting in front of the television, practically on autopilot, you are unlikely to think critically about what is being presented to you. All your brain will absorb is, I am flawed, I need to change, and I need to have this product in order to get what I want out of life. See what happened? In both choice restriction and watching an advertisement, you did not have to do any of your own thinking. You simply accepted what was presented to you. Another tactic common in undetected mind control is complete shamelessness by the parties attempting to control you. They will present what they are doing as though it is bettering the world. Think again of the diet pill advertisements. 
They show many before and after photographs of young, beautiful people who say that when they lost weight, their marriages improved and they received promotions at work. These companies are not just trying to sell you a product. They are trying to sell you a product by promising you a happier life, which they convince is only possible by using X product. Who is most susceptible to undetected mind control? The unhappy, the lonely, the forgotten. Think of your newly single friend consoling herself with some retail therapy and ice cream. She has fallen victim to the ice cream advertisements telling her that ice cream will make the afternoon so much sweeter and the clothing advertisements telling her he won't be able to resist you in that dress. You should be sensing a theme here. The people most susceptible to manipulation and most likely to believe pie-in-the-sky promises tend to be having a hard time and be in need of love, support, and self-esteem. This is why many advertisements prey on insecurities they know most of us have and problems many of us face. They bring up fatigue or body weight, crumbling marriages, and disorganized homes. These are issues no one wants to have that drive many of us crazy, and an advertisement that subtly suggests a product to cure us of these ills will subconsciously register as a saving grace of sorts. Why would the media want to control you? It's simple. The more the media controls your thoughts and beliefs, the more money you spend on just about anything. The companies that control your mind the most are the companies that get the most out of your paycheck. In advertising, as previously discussed, this can be manipulating you through the promise of a happier life. But there are other forms of media as well, like cable news. Cable news engages in undetected mind control by providing news as entertainment with all sorts of graphics and editorialized stories and often has a political agenda which is right or left-leaning. Presenters will often feign outrage or elation just to get you to agree with them. And it works. They certainly look knowledgeable, so you see no reason not to take what they say as true. A news presenter on TV may demonize a current or previous president without providing much evidence about what they are actually doing wrong, for example. So long as they inspire outrage or passion within you, they have done their job. The average American watches almost five hours of television per day. That's quite a bit. This means that we are constantly inundated with images of violence and messages to make us feel afraid and confused. While we watch TV we often go into a more relaxed state of mind, meaning we are more suggestible and open to agreeing with whatever we see on television. Once we are relaxed, we are more receptive to all the advertisements and messages thrown our way to make us change our beliefs or buy new products. How the media controls you with images. The two senses we have that are the easiest means for undetected mind control are sight and audition. We are most likely to use these senses to appreciate beauty. We gaze at a lover or beautiful piece of art and find great joy in listening to a great song. We often remember the visuals of our dreams in vivid details and daydream without vision as well. While these sound like obvious statements, they are worth stating explicitly because the special privilege awarded to sight in how we process the world explains how the media can engage in undetected mind control using images. In our lives, this can mean subliminal messaging by quickly flashing an image across a TV or computer screen. The flash is milliseconds long, so we are unable to consciously process it, but our subconscious can certainly get an impression from it, and it can influence how we perceive the parts of the screen we can see. 
The image flashed across the screen could be sexual, to convince you a character is attractive. It could be a fearful image, to prime you for suspense building up in a movie's plot. Generally, mind control by the media using image can be fairly devastating. Remember the underwear ad? We constantly are flooded with images of whom and what we ought to aspire to be. If we see these images frequently enough, we begin to compare our own lives to them and are perpetually dissatisfied with ourselves. You can guess where this leads. The constant imagery makes us feel low or afraid, so we spend money or change our beliefs. How the media controls you with sound. Audition is another extremely important way for undetected mind control tactics to reach us. It works more or less the way sound does, given that sound has the ability to inspire emotions in us because it's how most language occurs between people, and because we associate different patterns of sound with certain emotions. For example, a song can make us happy because its lyrics or its fun beat while the sound of a crying baby can make us anxious or feel concern for the infant. A famous and fun example is from the movie Jaws. Every time the shark is about to attack a victim, a specific soundtrack plays and the audience begins to unconsciously become anxious every time that music plays, even though it does not always precede a shark attack. A funny example of media control using sound occurred in a psychological experiment involving customers at a liquor store. Researchers hypothesized that if they played French music in the store, even at low volume so customers would less likely to notice that any music was playing at all, would result in higher sales of French wine during the hours that the music was playing. Can you guess what this experiment ended? That's right. The store sold more French wine while they played French music. Chapter 14. Be on the lookout for. After taking a look at the different types of persuasion and what they all mean, you may be able to see why dark persuasion is such a bad thing and can be harmful for the victim. Being able to recognize the different techniques that the manipulator may use can make it easier to understand when it is being used on you. So how exactly is a dark persuader able to use this idea in order to carry out their wishes? There are a few different types of tactics that a dark manipulator is going to use, but some of the most common options include the long con. The first method that we're going to take a look at is the long con. This method is kind of slow and drawn out, but it can be really effective because it takes so long and is so hard to recognize or even pinpoint when something went wrong. Some of the main reasons that some people have the ability to resist persuasion is because they feel that they are being pressured by the other person, and this can make them back off. If they feel that there is a lack of rapport or trust with that person who is trying to persuade them, they will steer clear as well. The long con is so effective because they are able to overcome these main problems and give the persuader exactly what they want. The long con is going to involve the dark persuader to take their time, working to earn the trust of the victim. They are going to take some time to befriend the victim and make sure that their victim trusts and likes them. This is going to be achieved by the persuader with artificial rapport building, which sometimes seems excessive, and other techniques that will help to increase the comfort levels between the persuader and their victim. As soon as the persuader sees that the victim is properly readied psychologically, the persuader is going to begin their attempts. They may start out with some insincere positive persuasion, 
The persuader is going to lead their victim into making a choice or doing some action that will actually benefit the persuader. This is going to serve the persuader in two ways. First, the victim starts to become used to persuasion by that persuader. The second is that the victim is going to start making that mental association between a positive outcome and the persuasion. The long con is going to take a long period of time to complete because the persuader doesn't want to make it too obvious what they are doing. An example of this is a victim who is recently widowed, who is a vulnerable because of their age and from their bereavement. After her loss, a man starts to befriend her. This man may be someone she knows from church or even a relative. He starts to spend more time with her, showing immense kindness and patience, and it doesn't take too long for her guard to drop when he comes around. Then, this man starts to carry out smaller acts of positive persuasion that we talked about before. He may advise her of a better bank account to use, or a better way to reduce any monthly bills. The victim is going to appreciate these efforts, and the fact that the man is trying to help her, and she takes the advice. Over some time, the man then tries to use some dark persuasion. He may try to persuade her to let him invest some of her money. She obliges, because of the positive persuasion that was used in the past. Of course, the man is going to work to take everything he can from her. If the manipulator is skilled enough, she may feel that he actually tried to help her, but the money is lost because he just ran into some bad luck with the investment. This is how far dark persuasion can go. Graduality. Often when we hear about acts of dark persuasion, it seems impossible and unbelievable. What they fail to realize is that this dark persuasion isn't ever going to be a big or sudden request that comes out of nowhere. Dark persuasion is more like a staircase. The dark persuader is never going to ask the victim to do something big and dramatic the first time they meet. Instead, they will have the victim take one step at a time. When the manipulator has the target only go one step at a time, the whole process seems less like a big deal. Before the victim knows it, they have already gone a long way down, and the persuader isn't likely to let them leave or come back up again. Let's take an example of how this process is going to look in real life. Let's say that there is a criminal who wanted to make it so that someone else committed the crimes for them. Gang bosses, cult leaders, and even Charles Manson did this exact same thing. This criminal wouldn't dream of beginning the process by asking their victim to murder for them. This would send out a red flag and no one in their right minds would willingly go out and kill for someone they barely know. Instead, the criminal would start out by having the victim do something small, like a petty crime, or simply hiding a weapon for them, something that isn't that big of a deal for the victim, at least in comparison. Over time, the acts that the manipulator is able to persuade their victim to do will become more severe, and since they did the smaller crimes, the persuader now has the unseen leverage of holding some of those smaller misdeeds over the victim, kind of like for blackmail. Before the victim knows it, they are going to feel like they are in too deep. They will then be persuaded to carry out some of the most shocking crimes. And often, by this point, they will do it because they feel like they have no other choice. Dark persuaders are going to be experts at this graduality to help increase the severity of their persuasion over time. They know that no victim would be willing to jump the canyon or do the big crime or misdeed right away. So, the persuader works to build them a bridge to get there. By the time the victim sees how far in they are, it is too late to turn back. Masking the True Intentions 
There are different methods that a persuader is able to use dark psychology in order to get the things that they want. Disguising their true desires is very important for them to be successful. The best persuaders can use this approach in a variety of ways, but the method they choose is often going to depend on the victim and the situation. One principle that is used by a persuader is the idea that many people are going to have a difficult time refusing two requests when they happen in a row. Let's say the persuader wants to get $200 for the victim, but they do not intend to repay the money. To start, the persuader may begin by saying they need a loan for the amount of $1,000. They may go into some details about the consequences to themselves if the persuader doesn't come up with that kind of money sometime soon. It may happen that the victim feels some kind of guilt or compassion to the persuader and they want to help, but $1,000 is a lot of money more than the victim is able to lend. From here, the persuader is going to lessen the request from 1000 down to 200 the amount that they wanted from the beginning. Of course, there is some kind of emotional reason for needing the money, and the victim feels like it is impossible to refuse this second request. They want to help out the persuader, and they feel bad for not giving in to the initial request when they were asked. In the end, the persuader gets the 200 they originally wanted, and the victim is not going to know what has taken place. Another type of technique that the persuader can use is known as reverse psychology. This can also help to mask the true intentions during the persuasion. Some people have a personality that is known as a boomerang. This means that they will refuse to go in the direction that they are thrown and instead will veer off into different directions. If the persuader knows someone who is more of a boomerang type, then they are able to identify a key weakness of that person. For example, let's say that a persuader has a friend who is attempting to win over some girl they like. The persuader knows that the friend will use and then hurt that girl. The girl is currently torn between the malicious friend and an innocent third party. The persuader may try to steer the girl in the direction of the guy who is actually a good choice, knowing that she is going to go against this and end up going with the harmful friend. Leading Questions Another method of dark persuasion that can be used is known as leading questions. If you have ever had an encounter with a salesman that is skilled, verbal persuasion can be really impactful when it is deployed in careful and calibrated ways. One of the most powerful techniques that can be used verbally is leading questions. If you have ever had an encounter with a salesman that is skilled, verbal persuasion can be really impactful when it is deployed in careful and calibrated ways. One of the most powerful techniques that can be used verbally is leading questions. These leading questions are going to be any questions that are intended to trigger a specific response out of the victim. The persuader may ask the target something like, how bad do you think those people are? This question is going to imply that the people the persuader is asking about are definitely bad to some extent. They could have chosen to ask a question that was non-leading, such as, how do you feel about these people? Dark persuaders are masters at using leading questions in a way that is hard to catch. If the victim ever begins to feel they are being led, then they are going to resist, and it is hard to lead them or persuade them. If a persuader ever senses that their victim starts to catch what is happening, they will quit using that one and switch over to another one. They may come back to that tactic, but only when the victim has quieted down a bit and is more influenceable again. The Law of State Transference State is a concept that is going to take a look at the general mood someone is in. If someone is aligned with their deeds, words, and thoughts, 
then this is an example of a strong and congruent state. The law of state transference is going to involve the concept of someone who holds the balance of power in a situation and can then transfer their emotional state onto the other person they are interacting with. This can be a very powerful tool for the dark persuader to use against their victim. Initially, the influencer is going to force their own state to match the state that the target naturally has. If the target is sad and they talk slowly, the influencer is going to make their own state follow this format. The point of this is to create a deep rapport with the target. After we get to this state match, the influencer is then going to alter subtly their own state and see if they have some compliance for the victim. Perhaps they will choose to speed up their own voice to see if the victim will speed up as well. Once the victim starts to show these signs of compliance, then this is an indication that the influencer is at the hook point. As soon as this hook point is reached, though it may take some time depending on the target and the situation, then the influencer is going to change their own personal state to the one they want the victim to have. This could be any emotional state that the influencer wants. It could be positive, angry, happy, or indignant. It often depends on what the persuader wants to help reach their goals. This technique is an important one for a dark persuader because it is going to show the impact of subconscious cues on the failure or the success of any type of persuasion. Chapter 15. The Truth About Hypnosis Hypnosis is still a very controversial topic. I've been researching it for a few years now. There is a lot of confusion, mystification, and pseudoscience surrounding the subject. Functional and conceptual reflections should be performed. I intend, in this column, to weave some of them together and even raise some questions. Hypnosis is a myth. I like this expression. It sums up very well the amount we don't know about hypnosis and how much fascination it can arouse. By myth, we can conceive of what is fabulous, spectacular, but also no longer corresponds precisely to the truth. The myth has more efficacy in it and is lacking in truth. This, however, does not preclude a critical and sensible reflection of this modern myth, hypnosis, on an attempt to understand it in a sincere and rational way. To do so, we should direct our gaze beyond the saturated field of mystifications in which it has always been plunged. Before Franz Anton Mesmer, 1734-1815, father of modern hypnosis, trance states and their modes of induction were relegated to the plane of the sacred, the supernatural. Before the advent of medicine as a specific and privileged body of scientific knowledge and practice for the production of reestablishment of health, healing was a process that was always linked to the supernatural. Healing invariably passed through religion. It was Mesmer who definitely led the hypnotic practice of the religious field to the medical field. The aura of magic, of witchcraft, of miraculous or divine healing, has always been close to shamanistic or healing practices. What once belonged to the plane of the unexplainable has penetrated the field of science, and there have been several attempts at a rational understanding of what this phenomenon is. However, as they always been and still closely tied to the field of religions, the trance states still inhabit an immense terrain of ignorance. Fables would almost be an automatic mechanism for understanding this, which has always been explained or understood in the light of myths and religions. Hypnosis is very mystified, even in the media that advocates for it some scientific understanding or validation. 
Even today, there is no shortage of misunderstandings about what it is or would be. Disregarded by some or deified by others, it circulates in the imaginary as a fact about which little is known whatsoever. The tendency is ignorance and judgments precipitated or filled with other interests, financial, ideological, corporistic, other than the sincere and humble search for knowledge. Those who exaggerate their powers and who make themselves heard at the full power of diffusion in the mass media are generally more interested in personal and financial self-promotion than in clarifying what hypnosis is. The more ignorance, the more obscure, the better, because they can thus be clothed with the aura of hidden knowledge and talents revealed only by a special process of learning, which would overcome the common exchanges between human beings. Thus, the technique itself, always demonstrated in favor of concealment of what it is, is totally lost in the midst of the sea of manipulations that manufacture it as another illusion to be sold and consumed by our society from time to time. Yes, the trick, the surprise, the illusion, sell. Many prefer illusion to knowledge. The joy of being deluded, the charm, sells more than enlightenment. There is grace in delusion, the bountiful benefit, sudden, without reason, and without explanation, is full of grace and a gift from God. And often, the work of knowing is a process of disillusionment and disenchantment. It shows the limits of some realities and causes frustrations. They extinguish with some horizons and create others. But we are so attached to those that we do not open ourselves to the new. Hypnotic trance states have always been present in the history of mankind, whether in religious rituals, shamanistic rituals, festivals, or even in modern societies, mass events, and all those who in some way reproduce the original symbolic relations between men. In modern days, however, medicine appropriates trance experiments to try to grant them a status of scientificity. This fact is still underway, the attempt to scientifically address the phenomenon of hypnosis. Given the impact usually produced on everyone involved, whether hypnotized or observers, hypnosis is something that deserves attention. Whether it is a neurological phenomenon, psychological, or social coercion, the sensible and sincere attempts to understand it are valid. Even if hypnosis is simply a farce, I have no doubt that through it we can better understand what human beings, their psyche, and their relationship to others of their kind are. The Seven Major Myths of Hypnosis Myths are untruths or exaggerations regarding the definition, process, and purpose of something. I will enlist some myths along with their refutations about hypnotism. Number one, is hypnosis sleeping? No. The hypnotic trance is a modified state of consciousness called the alpha state. In this state, other than psychological sleep, there is a strong electrical activity in the brain due to the very high level of concentration that the subject is performing. Simplifying hypnosis to the maximum, we can define it as monoideism, that is, absolute focus on the imagination. 2. Hypnosis is conditional. A trusting partnership between the hypnotist and the subject is required, so if the subject does not want to be hypnotized, they will not be. In the old days, it was said that the hypnotist became the operator of the mind of the hypnotized subject, but I would say that the hypnotist is another facilitator of the trance. He bridges the conscious mind and the unconscious, thus allowing the subject to access a state of consciousness which allows the subject to experience the full potential of their own mind. 3. Hypnosis works. 
If this is true, 100% of the people who can pay attention are mentally weak. After all, if you dream awake, have fun reading a good book, travel listening to an interesting story, or go to the movies and get emotional about them, you go into a trance. Have you ever encountered a person who has a lost, seemingly distracted look? And when you catch their attention, she takes a little fright. This person is not distracted. In fact, she is hyper-concentrated, that is, in trance. The truth is that once in a while our brain hibernates for a few minutes to save energy. Have you ever wondered if you needed to be aware of everything you do all the time? Consider someone who drives a car. When he is learning, he found it all complicated. Steering, gears, brakes, throttle, clutch, and all at the same time. But now, he operates so unconsciously or automatically that he even commits himself to reckless talking on a cell phone while driving. Basically, if a human being is able to concentrate and obey the instructions, he can be hypnotized. 4. The hypnotized subject will do whatever the hypnotist says. The human mind is not mother's house. There are particular moral principles of each person, and these principles are obeyed and protected by the subject's unconscious mind. Thus, it is true to say that a hypnotized person will do nothing against their moral principles, religion, family, values, physical integrity. That is, if you would not perform an action while awake, you would not do so while hypnotized. 5. The hypnotized subject will tell all his secrets to the hypnotist. Topic number four answers that one. Six, hypnosis is a physiological phenomenon. It is a legitimate neurophysiological phenomenon where brain functioning has very special characteristics such as muscle relaxation, anesthesia, dilation of the pupils, and memory enhancement. During the trance, there are actually changes in the brain, and this has already been confirmed in a study by examination of volunteers. Perhaps in mysticism, there is a little hypnosis, but in hypnosis, there is nothing mystical. 7. Can a person not return from the trance? Back from where? You're not going anywhere. The advantage of being hypnotized is that you can travel the whole world without leaving your body, just with your mind. Finally, hypnosis is a safe method for both entertainment, street, stage, and clinical applications, hypnotherapy, and the like. If you believe in God, see the ability to be hypnotized as a divine gift for your self-improvement. But if you do not believe in a deity, see hypnosis as a very powerful tool that nature has given to the human being to accelerate positive changes in life. Hypnosis Techniques There are three main techniques of hypnosis used in clinical treatment. Clinical hypnosis, that is, hypnosis performed in the office by a trained professional can follow different methodologies or concepts depending on the line of work of the hypnologist. Today, we will present the three most known lines and their main characteristics. Conditional hypnosis, created and patented by Luis Carlos Crozera. Conditional hypnosis is a technique used to rid the patient's mind of blockages that directly interfere with his physical and emotional health. In this technique, deep body relaxation is done so that the patient has a decrease in his brain frequency and, with the purest mind, can be led by the hypnotist to the traumatic records that accompany him. At this point, the professional removes the registered emotional charge, disassociating the trauma from the given situation. 
Upon returning from the trance, the patient already has an important behavioral change when faced with what caused him anguish. Thus, the hypnotist uses the post-hypnotic suggestion, a technique that executes the commands inserted during the trance, in order to achieve the best possible results. In conditional hypnosis, the patient does not interact with the hypnotist. Ericksonian hypnosis. In this technique of clinical hypnosis, described by the American psychiatrist Milton Erickson, the patient is suggested to seek within himself new learning that leads to a reformulation of thoughts and truths. Thus, the patient is led to the trance and suggested to relive, in a metaphorical way, the situation that causes him pain and suffering, but with a completely different outcome aiming for the trauma to be forgotten. The idea is not to change what has been experienced, but to give other responses to the trauma, since it is believed that the patient has all the resources necessary to solve his own problems. Classic hypnosis. This method is mostly in disuse because it presents less efficient results than the other methodologies. Classic hypnosis consists of searching in the memory of the patient for the facts that bring him suffering and making him understand that it is part of the past and should no longer reach the present. How to hypnotize someone without them knowing. Have you ever heard of a method that claims to be able to achieve through repetitive motions with the help of pendulums or finger movements, which allows them to stay in a state of trance? Is it possible? Well, some people believe so. Texts produced in Egypt in 1550 BC show evidence that older people already use these practices. Well, the name of this method is hypnosis, and in fact, that is a psychological state, which brings together several phenomena that occur in our mind, and which can produce different impacts. It can be conducted by a voice, and has been used as an instrument in the treatment of different diagnoses. While there are those who believe in past lives, and those who do not, it is true that hypnosis can cause the patient to return to a certain age. For example, Hypnosis may return someone up to X age, where he may have contracted some kind of trauma. Let's look at a situation to illustrate. A patient is in a hypnotized state. The doctor put his hands on the patient's arms and warns that he is applying an ointment, when in fact, he is not applying anything, he just touches the patient's hands. Despite this, the patient has the feeling that the doctor is actually applying an ointment, being able to smell the ointment as it passes through a positive olfactory hallucination. The patient, who is hypnotized, really believes the doctor's words. Another example is the case of a patient who smells a scent. When they smell the gunpowder, if this smell happens to be strongly associated with when they were 10 years of age, then the patient can regress until the age of 10 to try to solve some kind of childhood problem. Not everyone is able to perform this practice because a badly done hypnosis session can cause great harm. This is because hypnosis is not restricted only to return to time, but also the treatment of certain psychological problems, which can be aggravated if not treated by a specialized professional. For this reason, only those who have technical knowledge of the use of hypnosis should practice it. How to Hypnotize a Person However, if you would like to learn this technique in order to know the principles of hypnosis and then go deeper into the subject, follow this step-by-step -step guide. Step 1. The first thing to do is to make the person quite relaxed. Sitting comfortably and getting ready for the session in peace is a good start. It is not good to lie down because it can lead to sleep and prevent hypnosis from reaching the person's mind. Step 2. The second step 
is to start speaking slowly so that the person pays attention to your voice and begins to relax at the same time. Then you can use a pendulum. Swing the pendulum at the height of the person's eyes or your own finger, making repetitive movements also at eye level. You could also use the moving image of a spiral. Continue the movement until you see the person become half asleep. Ideally, the person should not close his or her eyes. One way that helps create concentration is to blink and focus the mind on what is being said. Talk about certain things, slowly, that cause you to relax and ask the person to imagine a feeling of warmth and comfort all over their body. Step 3. You need to always be in touch with the person who will be hypnotized. Ask him to take a deep breath and breathe out slowly through his nose. Ensure that the participant always stays relaxed during the hypnosis. Step 4. Ask him to imagine himself levitating and also to pay attention to all parts of his body, trying to perceive any discomfort or pain starting with his head and working downwards. Tell him to let the pain go away. Ask him to repeat this kind of thinking for each part of his body. Step 5. As soon as you realize that the patient has reached a state of relaxation, have him imagine a spiral staircase. He should fully visualize this thought and go down the stairs. With every step he takes on that ladder, he must feel he is moving even deeper into his thoughts. A few steps later, as many think necessary, let the patient know that there is a door at the end of the staircase and that it is time for him to cross that door. Step 6. The person must open the door and enter the next environment. Direct the person to imagine that this environment is a room which can be decorated in any way that he would like to imagine. Then, direct the thoughts of the person saying that he should look in this room for a place to sit. Step 7. Say you will count from 1 to 10, and that, in the end, the participant will be in a deep state of hypnosis. This is the time to ask the questions that will bring the patient to the result that you want to extract from that experience. This is also the time to cause sensations by suggestion of taste and smell, among others. For example, you can ask him to find some chicken in this room and eat it. The hypnotized person will actually believe and feel the taste of eating the chicken. Step 8. After the experience, let him know that he will wake up in a few moments. Ask him to rise from the place where, mentally, he is sitting and walk back down the same path. When he reaches the last step, he will be awake and relaxed. Then, count to three and say, wake up. Remember that this experience needs a lot of care and attention to be put into practice. After all, there are proven cases of poorly done hypnosis practices that have caused mental problems in patients. Therefore, seek the guidance of a professional. Chapter 16. Personality Disorders and Manipulation Many individuals who display manipulative behavior, in some cases, have personality disorders that make them more inclined to engage in manipulative behavior. It's hard to know who can have what, especially these potential people are people you grew up with or have known your whole life. However, it can grow and be hardened to their subconscious, where they act on it without even giving it a thought. When these disorders cloud their way of thinking, they can sometimes almost take on a new personality. For instance, while in a normal situation a person would be usually willing to admit responsibility for their actions, for a borderline in this case, they would put the blame on others and guilt trip them into thinking so. 
For example, an individual with narcissistic personality disorder might go out of their way to try and skew a situation to make them look innocent. Emotional manipulation is the main way these kinds of people achieve this goal. The problem with people like this is identifying the symptomology of these disorders and who is likely to have them. Because as a result of their psychopathologies, they have become experts at masking their symptoms. As a result, it can be a very tricky task as one could easily presume someone is a narcissistic simply because they are utilizing faulty information to come to this conclusion. This, along with the fact that many personality disorders share overlap with other conditions that affect both the body and the mind, adds to this difficulty. As a consequence of this, it makes more sense to focus on the characteristics rather than the direct symptomology. Beginning with one of the most common types of personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, people afflicted with NPD tend to exhibit some of the following key behaviors according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. A grandiose sense of self-importance, meaning that their sense of self-worth is highly inflated, and as a result, they may view the actions they take as somehow better than everyone else. This is one of the ways in which a narcissist can justify their own terrible behavior. Since I'm better than everyone else, I can do as I please towards them. A need for excessive admiration. This is characterized by an intense desire and want to belong and have their achievements and person praised. This can manifest in the form of emotional manipulation via the narcissist tearing down another individual's accomplishments and works. These are all the symptoms which the narcissist carries with them and what makes them so vicious. The two other major aspects of NPD are a sense of entitlement to special treatment. This tends to take the form of unrealistic demands and requests that can end up placing an individual in a compromising or unfair spot. This can provide a lot of fuel for mental manipulation by the narcissist trying to play the victim to get you their target to give in and do what they ask of you. While also exhibiting the aforementioned behaviors, pretty much all narcissists can be characterized by an overt lack of empathy, meaning that they will have no issue using you for something and then subsequently leaving you out to dry. As a result of this, probably their most dangerous behaviors as it can allow them to justify all sorts of things in their head. Avoiding narcissists can be a difficult task, but it is possible to look out for repeated patterns of the aforementioned behavior. The way they will try and manipulate you is by them almost always playing the victim and then trying to get you to second-guess yourself. Your best defense against a narcissist is to honestly just leave the relationship when it becomes too much. There is no fixing them. There is no pleasing them. They will just want more and more. That is why simply going too little to no contact with them is your best bet in avoiding their destructive, manipulative tactics. Along with NPD, there is another lesser-known personality disorder called BPD, Borderline Personality Disorder. BPD, or Emotional Unstable Personality Disorder, is a pattern of abnormal behavior that is indicated by an unstable sense of self. This unstable sense of self tends to manifest itself in an overchanging view and opinion of who they are, their self-worth, and what their goals are in life. Where the problems with this self-image come from is that they do not have an identity they can see themselves as due to the changing emotions and desires constantly. As well as an instability, their emotions and relationships with others, accompanied by feelings of emptiness or abandonment. 
These feelings of abandonment and emptiness can cause times be self-sabotaging and lead to the individual damaging themselves when the goal the whole time was to protect themselves. In a sense, the individual who is afflicted with a borderline personality disorder does not know who they are or what they want. And, as a result of this unstable and rapidly changing behavior, things can quickly ramp up to a state where manipulation comes into play, and on a destructive level at that. This can be where unintentional manipulation can come from. It should be noted, too, that this emotional instability tends to be characterized by many peaks and valleys in their emotions and behaviors, sometimes lasting for days to weeks at a time. Now, while borderlines will emotionally manipulate others, it is not intentional. Rather, it is done because of various factors from neurobiological to childhood trauma to environmental factors. These behaviors are used as a defense mechanism to prevent them from incurring further trauma upon themselves, and not as a malevolent thing. You have a couple more options in dealing with a borderline than you do someone who is a narcissist or a sociopath. In some cases, you may even be able to communicate to the borderline individual their behavior and how it is damaging and unintentionally manipulative. If they do not respond well to this kind of intervention, run and leave as your life depends on it. Borderlines can become extremely destructive very easily. At different times, borderlines can feel an array of emotions with much greater ease and depth than the average person. When they experience happiness or joy, it will be exceptionally high most of the time. On the contrary, this will lead them to feeling profoundly low whenever they feel depressed, guilty, angry, or angst. This can cause them to harm themselves through self-mutilation or decorative behaviors. That plays into how a borderline will manipulate you on an emotional level. Remember, this will serve you well. Now, there is one more personality disorder that you should be on the lookout for, and this is Antisocial Personality Disorder, or APD. APD is better known to the public as psychopathy or sociopathy. Now, this designation of psychopath or sociopathy does not mean that all individuals with ASPD are out to kill you. No, it's actually quite the contrary. People with ASPD tend to be characterized by a repeated pattern of disregard for the boundaries and respect of others. As a result, they can be very, very good at manipulating someone into doing what they want. The big thing to look for is the superficial charm or glib, as most sociopaths are very excellent at putting on a mask. In simple terms, this means that they will try to tell you what they think you want to hear, and as a result, can very easily suck you in with their fake charm. This thought is how you can easily identify them. If you're talking to someone and your gut instinct feels that they seem disingenuous or they are trying to put on a front, then go with that gut instinct. It exists for a reason and will help you. Your best bet in trying to avoid their manipulation tactics is very subtly call them out. What this means is if someone is trying to talk you into something and it seems off to tell them, no, you're trying too hard. Well, when you're trying too hard is really the telltale signs of a sociopathic manipulation, as these people get bored very easily. So when they think they have found a new target for the manipulation, they will try everything in the book to get that target to do what they want.